everyone. Thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. You know him as Bert Soren, the notorious B-E-R-T. His lineage is as long and impressive as his beard. When he's not running the world-renowned Sorenex, he's spending time in the proverbial thin air. If there's one thing that Bert does better than make strength equipment, it's make friends with some of the coolest people you'll ever meet. We're proud to call him one of ours. Here it is, episode 494. So I was trying to wear my Sornex uh, gift from Bert Soren today, so I busted that one up. I, I did see that, and I think my favorite part about it, not only that you're Jack, but you have the typical John Wellborn 1980s yep. cut. And, and you, I really have to, well, see, if I brought that back, it, it would it, the, the joke and the coolness would go unfettered because of my beard. Uh, that's true. So little history, uh, I cut every single shirt like that I wore, or so every shirt that I ever wore under pads, I cut like this because uh, I always thought it looked stupid when I was standing on it, when I would see myself on uh, TV, where you see like the t-shirt right underneath because yeah. my shoulder pads came down so far. And I just, it, like, I don't know, it was one of those things I saw that just bothered the shit out of me seeing myself on TV. So that's why I started always cutting the, the dip in there. And then, I don't know, it's just kind of been uh, the way that I actually mark shirts. So when the shirts are new, I'll wear them. And then when they start to get a little faded, like I actually like them, that's when I put the cut in them. And so I know uh, like the evolution of the black, because we have so many fucking black t-shirts. I'm sure like you, yeah. you're like, oh, yeah. it, I, they're almost like gremlins. Like uh, you wash them or you feed them after midnight. And then all of a sudden my wife will be like, how many more black t-shirts? I'm like, I don't know. They just keep fucking showing up. And you know, like I got four Sornex t-shirts. I got this. I mean, people just send us stuff. And then next thing I know, I have like this, I run out of hangers and then I got to go through and be like, all right, I'll just. Oh, I, I don't even do hangers. And first of all, I love that you're a slave to the fashion and the branding that John Wellborn has the sweet cut because I mean, it help, it works too. Cause you're jacked and you have like a big football neck still. And so it works. So stay with it. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like Judd Logan back in the days with the headband, like the Rambo headband when he threw you know, you're just like, okay, you're pulling a judge. So now, as you know, people are pulling a wellborn. Well, I'm just trying to get down. What's your body weight? What are you about, 245? Yeah, good, good. I was 235 and then had a little bit extra food. And I was 245 the other day. Yeah, when I saw is- you, I thought you looked about 245. I'm like, man, that'd be a good target weight for me to hit. There's a little bit more here than used to be. Like the pants are filling out again. And it's like, wow, am I squatting a lot? I'm like, mm, maybe not as much. Oh, uh, well, maybe you're just, you know, uh, you know, maybe you got to get Rudy Reyes to come to town and just shame you into not eating. <laughs> I'm, I'm finally getting man weight now at 44 <laughs> years old. I'm, I'm finally thickening up. <laughs> <laughs> you, dude, you've been thick your whole life, dude. I don't know what you're talking dude. about. So the, the problem, though, is uh, uh, like I see you, like when I saw you down at the uh, Black Rifle Coffee deal, which uh, looked like so much fun. I, oh. I, I, I was like sick to myself. One that like. I, I need to get on that radar better, man. And I really appreciate you sending me all that stuff. Um, yeah, but dude. like, it, it was, uh, I, I saw you, I was like, fucking, you look like an absolute giant. I'm like, God damn, Bert looks like a fucking man amongst children. And then I, I was realized, with Evan. yeah, like those dudes are just <laughs> like not big dudes. And uh, it's just so, so like for me, I see it and I'm like, I, you know, I don't know. I can't, you know, conceptually see myself. So right, I, but then you walk in and it's like you and Robert or Oberst, Jesus, and that guy's Gold, a fucking... and Goldberg and freaking Lucas uh, from Grizzly Forge, and y'all are absolute Sasquatches. Uh, he's a that Robert dude is massive. Yeah, he he's got to be four hundred plus pounds. And his head is giant too. 
His head is giant. <laughs> and then funny Goldberg story uh, about, man, I was playing with the Chiefs. So this would have been 06 or 07. Uh, I, want, I, um, I wanted to go to the Barrett-Jackson. So uh, Jay Glazer has a house in Arizona. He's like, hey, uh, you can stay at my house. Uh, one of my buddies is going to be staying there too. You could probably hang out with him. So he gives me like the code. I enter into this, you know, pretty bitching place that's like pretty close to the Bear Jackson Scottsdale. It's, it's not one of those like the key is under the third rock in the, uh, the, the, it's like a code house. That's like big time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was like a code house. Like, he, like hey, there's, you know, I guess because people come and stay there. And so yeah. I go in and uh, I walk in the kitchen and it's fucking Goldberg's his buddy who's staying there and he's selling one of his cars. So I hung with Goldberg for like three days. Like, like went there, like everything. And I saw him and uh, I was like, I didn't want to go over to him and be like, hey, Bill, I don't know if you remember me, but, uh, you know, we hung out for three days, like 15 years ago, you know, like. We're still is, friends, right? right? Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Red and, Lobster? Yeah, yeah exactly. It'd be great. Yeah. It's, it, and and he's a, he was a cool fucking dude. Uh, he probably would have been like, ah, uh, no, I don't remember that. So I kind of was like, uh, I'll just leave it alone. Um, yeah. Just. Like that happened to me like one one or two times where I like ran into somebody and I was like, oh no, we've met before. And they were like, man, no, I don't remember that. And I'm like, hmm, okay. Yeah, I, I kind of watched that one too because I my ego is too fragile to be <laughs> shunned by them. <laughs> and so I'm just like, how's it going, Umbert? And if they're like, yeah, I know, I know you. I'm like, yes. Dude, the fact that cool. you always introduce yourself to Andy Stumpf like you've never met him, I absolutely great- fucking love that because that's what yeah. I do with Andy. When I see him, I'm like, hey, Andy, John Walmer, good, good to see you. Be like, fuck you. Yeah, you know? I love it. No, I, I wish I saw him more so I could play the joke more. He'll probably throat punch me one day just for doing it. <laughs> well, you know, he was a little bitch and couldn't fight for shit. And then now he's got into jujitsu, which, uh, uh, you know, just means that he's, you know, you know, which is probably fits good for him. So, uh, yeah, no, he was funny. Um, yeah. I'm supposed to drive up and go see him and do his podcast. And he cool. was like, uh, um, he's like, how are your jujitsu skills? Uh, skills? I'm like, well, they're antiquated because I haven't been training, but I'm going to start training just so I can fucking choke you out and be like, how long have you been training? I'm still going to fucking lay a beat on you. Well, it, it also helps that you're like, you know, NFL pro bowler with 20 inch guns and you're a Sasquatch too. So like that's part of the, you kind of know jujitsu probably goes a long way. Well, you know, I, I did, ju- I, I did jits back in high school. Ah, um, and shit. then, uh, when I was in the NFL, how did uh, you even know what that was back then? So little known. And there was another reason that I, I, uh, the guy, this is hilarious. Uh, the guy that I did stand up fighting with in high school, cause I, I started martial arts when I was six and I, I met this guy named Nono Lobontier who was like a, a stand up boxing, but he also did like hop keto and a bunch of stuff. So I trained with him. Um, Horace Gracie brought Nono in to teach him stand up after, you know, cause those guys were only doing their ground game. So when I saw Horace Gracie there, I had met him in the mid nineties, we would go down to the Gracie school down in Torrance on yeah. Carson street. There's a, there was a Japanese restaurant called Todai all you can eat place that we used to go after. So that was the part I really remembered, but we used to go down there and fuck with those dudes. And, uh, so that's when I got into jujitsu. And so when I saw Horace Gracie at the black rifle thing, that was another thing I didn't want to roll over and be like, Hey, when I was 16 years old, I used to come to your place with no, no, like, and, um, he probably would, he, he still knows no, no, because, uh, no, no's son, his Nono's daughter is like the number one jujitsu player under 18 for a female and his son's an MMA fighter. So he would remember, but that was another one where I was like, fuck, I haven't like, I met these people decades ago when I was, you know, so, um, but that's when I got into it 
And then in the off season, um, then I, I boxed, we, we boxed with the Cal boxing team in the off season. And then when I went to the NFL, when I moved back to California, um, I used to go down and roll with this guy, Joker and Eric Apple and a bunch of dudes, uh, down in orange County. So I, I did that the whole off season. So like my game, you know, but I, you know, like I was always a pretty skilled boxer and fighter. And then with the ground game stuff, man, like as long as I just didn't fucking gas out, I was usually pretty decent. So then I just yeah, got I away say, from it. I would, I would say that you're kind of like one of those very strange, there's very few, few of them or us. I don't know if I'm in that category, but like the Kevin Bacon of training, it's like you've been around so long and you've trained in so many different, you know, silos that, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, I trained with him in 19 diggity three, you know, and it's like, but, but there's obviously legit, but I guess that's what you do when you're in the iron game or the training world for, you know, 30 or 40 years, you kind of like, but my joke was at black rifle. Cause people kept showing up that I knew, or like Eric Serrano was staying in my house the week before. And we got talking about, you know, a certain person. And it was like, strangely enough, Leslie used to date him. And then he was a customer of mine 15 years later. And then Serrano was his doctor all through major league baseball. And you're like, how in the hell do we know the same person from three different things? And it's like, oh yeah. Cause there's like 44 cool people in the world. Yeah. And, and that was uh, kind of my joke at black rifle. I'm like, yep, yeah, 44 people. Cause every time you end up running into someone, like there's all these 19 connections. You're like, well, there's 44 of us. Great. Well, there's uh, as my buddy, Rick from Starling gets my buddy, Rick from Starling gear said, when you push out to the fringe, it gets super, super skinny. Like for example, yes. uh, Todd white, who's was just on Rogan. Um, Todd's an artist lives up the street from me. I sold him my 69 Camaro 14 years ago when he lived out in, uh, uh, like North LA uh -huh. and he just dropped that Camaro off for me to do some work cause he's trying to sell it. And then he has a jujitsu school. He was one of Jean-Jacques Machado's first black belts. Jeez. He was on Rogan. Uh, like it just, uh, like the world is so small when you start kind of pushing out and like, it, you know, like it's, it's, it's just, uh, you know, like. Class example was uh, we had Jocko on the podcast uh, a couple years cool. ago, and he's like, "You don't remember me, do you?" And I'm like, "Fuck!" And I had gone to Jocko's jujitsu school to talk to him. Um, they they brought me over there, and I met him. We we had gone to his place and went out and talked about training, and especially like strength training in terms of like how to use it for jits. And this was like in '08. And as he wow. said, as soon as he said it, I was like, "Shit, man! I totally remember you." And I didn't even put two and two together. And, uh, but I just wonder if that's from, you know, being in the NFL and, and just meeting sure. so many people where you're like, fuck dude, I just can't handle this much bandwidth. I mean, shit, we yeah, were sitting in the yeah. elevator at the CrossFit games in 08 mm -hmm. and uh, I remember meeting you. And then when you brought it up, I was like, I totally remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's, again, it goes in, like you say, it's like out on the fringe and kind of, we always use the thin air and that's what we talk about. The further you go up to, up the mountain of not necessarily like status or anything like that, but like the further you go up that mountain, the more difficult the, the climb is because you're going in a way down the rabbit hole, but you're going up the mountain to see like what's up there. The air gets thinner and thinner, fewer people could breathe it. But when you get to the top, you realize like all the same dudes are at the top yeah. and you're like, Oh, you guys were crazy enough to keep going this far. Interesting. And there's like very little competition up there because they're the people that just want to go super far and super deep for not like really a, a, a feasible, rational reason, right? There's most things that people go down the rabbit hole so deeply or go to the top of the mountain. It, it, 
there, there's a very hard, like, Hey, if you do this, you'll be a millionaire one day, or you do this, you'll get all these accolades. It's like, ah, this is some crazy passion that probably no one likes now, but Hey, if you're super good at it and you live in this weird space for another 20 years, like people want you on a podcast, like in 20 years from now, what's a podcast. It doesn't matter. Just keep going. Like <laughs> talk to pops about it yesterday. That guy was doing grip training to the level that's like still remarkable in the eighties when there wasn't grip training. Yeah. So there wasn't anyone to even know like, Hey, how are you? Can you do the blob? Can you do the Thomas inch dumbbell? Could you do the number three? Cause the answer was no, because yeah. no one was doing it. Like I'm going to go pick up a jowl at Amble. Why the hell would you do that? I don't know. It's well, there. I don't think that's why, uh, that's how the, uh, the blacksmith used to test their strength is sure. that they could pick it up. And so your dad, uh, who I always enjoy spending time with your dad, actually my favorite part about seeing your dad is I always go shake his hand. Yeah. And uh, I like shaking your dad's hand because uh, it reminds me that I have a long way to fucking go. Like when you shake it, it's like <laughs> it's like there's like inertia, it's thickness. I think it's arthritic and just fucking dense. When you shake your dad's hand, I'm like, fuck, this is the type of handshake. This is what you need to feel. And uh, I, dude, every time I see him, I'm like, Mr. Soren, pleasure. Great, great to see you again. And I always go shake his hand and he's like, uh, you know. And then the <laughs> hilarious part was a couple years ago, we were fucking around picking up those anvils. And I picked up that 172 and Pop's face lit up. And then he oh. ran over and he was so excited. And he's like, you know, and uh, in his, you know, he's like, oh, a lot of these pussies can't pick this thing up, you know. <laughs> it was just kind of like, uh, and then I made it. I was like, well, maybe we just make that the interest of Summer Strong. Like, you got to be able to pick up an anvil. And he was like, and then the, when we were at Winter Strong, every time I saw me on a different hat, Oh, dude, I, was, I like that you noticed that. Oh, dude. Well, I, I'm, uh, uh, I notice small details about everything. You're a trained observer. Yeah, well, dude, I just notice uh, like life, life for me is in the details and like sure. things that like, and what's weird is when people don't notice this stuff, like you notice a cut in my shirt. I like, you know, there's always these little things. Um, and I think it's because life is in the details. Um, you know, yeah. like the, uh, Rick always, like my buddy Starling Gear, you know, the devil's in the details and it's the people that notice the details are the ones that are able to make tweaks. Yeah. And the ones that enjoy life to the fullest, in my opinion, because then you're then you're seeing the beauty and the interest in the mundane. Right. Like the little stuff throughout the day. It's like you're wearing a T-shirt. But I'm like, hey, that's pretty awesome. You're wearing a T-shirt that I kind of made as a tongue in cheek joke that maybe 10 people have. And you put the the tip, the stereotypical on brand John Wellborn cut. Super awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, dude, I am a huge Red Dawn fan. I know. We've I know. A lot and about and, that. and what's hilarious? I mean, so this is. I don't know if you remember. I think we have a movie wreck for the day. In the movie Red Dawn, uh, you know, they uh, like the resistance has like radio signals, and they put codes, which they did in Vietnam, and they did it in World War One. World War. I mean, anytime they've had radio, they've always pushed out, and that's how they've communicated is through public radio channels. And in it, it was like the chair is against the wall. John has a long mustache. And so, uh, yeah, and all of a sudden this shirt, this, when we were in COVID lockdown, this shirt shows up and I'm like, the chair is against the wall. Yeah. There's, there's a few that have, have those, um, that would also, that obviously will get the reference, you know? So, uh, uh, it, it, uh, cool. I'm glad. Yeah. I mean, you and I've talked about red Dawn, which it's kind of jokingly, you know, that was like one of my favorite movies forever. And I've said that. And then I was talking to my wife. I'm like, of course, cause you know, things got pretty weird last year. Yeah. And, are still pretty weird. I'm like, of course, this would be my favorite movie. Like, you know, you, you, you what you ask for, you're probably going to end up living in the field somewhere in Colorado and, uh, you know, wearing snow camis. Well, the, the part that always hooks me on that movie is when they go and they visit their dad in the detention center and he's like, avenge me. 
And then they take him out and they fucking stand up and they start singing uh, the national, you know, like, you know, God bless America. And they fucking gun him down. And then they yeah. have to watch that. And mm. like that whole thing at the end when they're fucking just basically just tearing those dudes a new ass. And you remember his brother gets shot and he's sitting on the, oh. on the, on the swing and he's like, dad will be here any second. Like I mean, even thinking about it, dude, like still chokes me up. Like, and it I does. know it's like an eighties move. I'm going to tear up just even saying it. But like that, hundred percent, man. I dude, cannot watch that movie. Oh. I've not watched that movie in thirty years and not cried. Dude. Especially the end part. I was like, because I never had brothers, right? Yeah. And that was my fantasy of, I wish I had a brother or someone so close that they would, I could sit on a park bench as they breathe their last breath. Yeah. Like that's what I fantasize about of, of a brother being. Yeah. You know, no, I'm joking. Yeah. yeah, no, it, it, dude, it's, uh, and I know it's like, you know, the violent, the whole thing, but like, you know, I grew up with two older brothers and, you know, yeah. like the fact that like that dad was like fucking avenge me, not like, you know, the, uh, you know, like, Hey, I knew I was hard on you. Uh, yeah. I always loved you guys fucking avenge me like that. That's the type of shit that wakes me up at like, you know, six in the morning, let's go bang some fucking iron because, um, you know, that's the example. Yep. And those yeah. kids were able to survive and do that because their dad was an example. Um, when when right. I found out I was having twins, um, I was kind of stressed. Needless to say, I find you know like you know when your wife comes home and says I'm pregnant and you're like awesome with twins. What I don't know anybody with twins like this seems still awesome. Work. Yeah, I mean it's still <laughs> awesome, but it takes you for a second. So I I hit up all these different people uh, that we'd had on the podcast and that I knew that were very successful. Um, you know, that had kids and the whole deal. And I just kind of like, I, it, it was kind of a side project that, uh, I kind of wanted to write a book on, but then as I got into it, um, I was kind of selfish with the, just the information and I've talked about it on the podcast and some blogs and stuff. But, uh, I remember one of the guys I spoke to who was like, both of his kids were lawyers. I think his other kid was a doctor, um, made an interesting point. He's like, I was like, any regrets, you know, as a parent? And he's like, I think I was too hard on my kids. Hmm. Um, he's like, I, I, you know, like, and then it was interesting cause I talked to another parent who was, uh, you know, kids had gotten into drugs and rehab and whatever. And he's like, I should have been less of his friend and more of his parent. And I should have been harder on him. I shouldn't have let shit slide. I was trying to be their friend. And the, the individual said, if you want to be a good parent, be a parent, your kids have friends all around. They don't need a fucking friend, be their parent, hold them to a standard. And more importantly, be the stand or, you know, be the person that you want them to become. And I yeah. think what I've always appreciated, and I said this, I've said this numerous times, uh, you know, honoring your family name and your father and you, you know, your parents is such is a big respect to me. And, uh, you know, what you've done at Sornex with your dad and all that, and like building this legacy and like even this, you know, keeping this culture of physicality. Is that what, is that what it is? This physical culture alive. Because, dude, I've, I mean, uh, the first time I ever touched weights, I knew I wanted to be big and strong and I wanted to bang these things. And I've lifted them pretty much my entire life since I was 14 years old, um, you know, and it's uh, it's cool to know that, like, I'm not weird like that, you know, to, to show up and you see this, some, you know, and like you're telling me stories yeah. about you and your dad and all that. And I'm like, shit, like one, I'm sad that I didn't meet you guys while I was playing in the NFL. Oh. Um, you know, but I, I figure everything comes around when it's supposed to, but like I was so hyper-focused and like, that's the nice thing about social media is it kind of opens it up. I was like a horse with blinders where like mm. there was nothing around other than like this moment. And I wonder if social media, I would have been like, oh shit, let's go to Summer Strong. Let's go meet these people. Let's go find these. Cause I, I, I just had this vision that like there were these monsters out there training and I was preparing to fight these monsters and I never yeah. really, you know, and then I just got to see them on Sundays. I should wish I had gone and seen them in the off season. 
Right. But probably that, that piece of the blinders helped you amazingly. Cause that's how it was. I mean, cause we're the same age <clears throat> when I was at South Carolina, my coach, Larry judge was just, I mean, he was a great sports psychologist and that he made you just terrified that your, your competitors were training harder than you. And he would come up with these wild numbers that these guys were doing. And, you know, we we're too stupid to question it because there was no social media to an extent. There was no social media, but there was very you know, internet wasn't like something, there was no YouTube. So yeah. he's telling me, oh, Aaron Osmus is doing this and this and this at Tennessee. And you're like, oh my gosh, like we better get after it. I remember him convincing us that Balaj Kiss, who was the hammer thrower that won the 96 Olympics, but also won the NCAAs and everything, for sure had a 500 pound clean because he was throwing 83 meters. So when I'm trying to clean 350, I'm thinking I'm so far off of what this dude is doing. I have to clean four or I'm not even going to be good. And so you have like, and then you're looking later and you're like, okay, you clean 350 pounds at 210 pounds body weight. Well, I just thought that's what you had to do. And I was pissed that I couldn't get 365 at the time, Yeah, but you get like, you get these blinders because you're just told that this is what it takes. And probably like yourself, you were just like, there's dudes as big and as strong and, and meaner and, and you're training harder and all these things. And then you realize you're probably out training 95% of the NFL all the time. Yeah. Well, and the, uh, I, I never just trained, I'd never trained at a single off season with the team. Um, they wouldn't give me an off season workout deal. And I was like, well, I'm not going to fucking hang around here and have you not pay me. Like, if right. I'm, you know, like I'm going to go where I want to train mm -hmm. And uh, every year they'd be like, oh, you know, so-and-so made 100% of the workouts. You didn't make any. And I'd be like, no problem. Let's fucking line up. Let's run the conditioning test. Let's do all of our physical training. And all of a sudden I'm fucking smoking dudes in the conditioning, you know, to the point where like, you know, fuck, I'm just going to run with the, uh, with the linebackers or we're going to run with a different group. And, wow. you know, and then we go in and we hit these numbers and, you know, hey, shit, dude, you just did fucking 25 fucking dead hang pull-ups. You know, you benched 500 pounds. I mean, all of these numbers just setting it off the fucking chart to the point where they're like, we're still not giving you an off-season workout bonus. And maybe they did, and they're like, fuck, let this guy go and do what he's going to do. <laughs> yeah, like he's but doing uh, uh, I, I used to always show up, and I'd be like, all right, hey, great. I'm stoked you guys made 100% of those workouts. Let me see where you are yeah. in a week. Let me see where you are in cool. two. In four weeks, where are you going to be? And uh, um, I would walk in and, like, you know, like just being like, I'm going to fucking not only, like, uh, you know, train at this intensity, but it's like uh, I'm always amazed when people have this opportunity and they don't seize it. And, uh, you know, I knew it was selfish and whatnot, but I'm like, fuck, man, I just wanted to be the best. I have a question on that for Bert. Bert, you have a pretty awesome walk-on story. For Did Coach Judge start to treat you any different when you were earning the respect of the team and then eventually Bert, scholarship? Uh, Bert, tell, tell the story because I love the story about you lying your way in there. <laughs> like, I've, I've heard it a couple times, and I smile so every time. Yeah, um, It's so stupid. It's like Forrest Gump. I was too dumb to know any better, basically. So, <laughs> Which only happens when you're 18 years old. Or 17 at the or time. 17. So I really had no earthly idea what was occurring. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I, um, I was going to go to Appalachian State. That's where I wanted to do because I wanted to be like a fly fishing guide, a snow ski instructor, like grow a beard, like hang out with hippies and like not just hippies, like the hot hippies, but like. Like the hippie chicks. Know, hippie chicks and like lift some weights and do some cool stuff but like be super outdoor guy weird right um and kind of a shitty athlete in, in high school as kind of as in never made you know any state championships or anything so i get i, I apply late because i'm a dumbass and uh i get into app state but they said you got to come in the spring i'm like eh, all right fine like i'll go to south carolina that was my backup school i just applied because it's 10 minutes from me 
fine, I'll go down there. So of course, like the first six days I'm there, I just drink my face off and ride my mountain bike around class and just around campus and chase chicks and go to all the parties. And I was like, this is awesome. Cause I thought that college was like an eighties movie. I thought it was like revenge of the nerds or something like that. And I was like, this is great. You know? And then like the sixth day I wake up pretty hungover and I'm feeling like, I mean, I remember at this point, I'm only 170, 172 pounds at six feet two. So I'd call pops. I'm like, I was like, I, I want to lift weights. And so I called pops. And I was like, Hey, I went by the P center. The equipment's terrible. Can you get me in the, uh, the, the South Carolina athletic weight room? Cause I know we did some of the equipment and he's like, yeah, let me give a call. So he calls down there and uh, rock uh, Oliver uh, was a strength coach down there <clears throat> said, sure. Have him come in after the athletes come in, kind of throw me a bone. Let me get a workout in again. This is 1994. So stuff like that played, you know? <clears throat> so of course I'm 17, so I don't listen to details. I just get done eating. I hang out in my dorm room and I just go. It's like two o'clock in the afternoon. And if you've ever been to a college weight room, you realize two o'clock in the afternoon, like everybody and their dog is there. So this is August. I'm showing up like wearing whatever I'm wearing, walk in. There's athletes everywhere. We had one weight room for all of South Carolina athletics. So it's like there's cheerleaders, football players, baseball players, I don't know. There's just a ass ton of kids. So you could kind of, it's the first week of school. So you could just kind of cruise in and no one knows who's shit from Shinola. <clears throat> so I go in there, I'll start doing some cleans. And I'm like, this is kind of fun. No, oh, they got a Lico bar. Sweet. And um, now I'm watching some people doing vertical jumps. So I'm like, oh, that's cool. I've never done that before. That's neat. So I stand in line, very Forrest Gump, right? <laughs> just stand in a line and see what happens. So I get there and they measure me and I jump and it's like, 29 and a half inches. And I was like, they're like, yeah, that's pretty good. I'm like, right on. And I just walk off. And um, then a little bit later on, I'm bench pressing and then they're doing body fat testing. And I was like, oh, that looks cool too. Cause of course I love Rocky four. And so all the diagnostics sounded awesome. I'm like, this is cruel. They're doing like all these cool Russian diagnostics, which is literally a caliper test. So I walk in, in line and I get there and he goes, all right, what's your name? I'm like, oh shit. Like, uh, kind of, kind of sunk now. So I tell him my name is Bert Soren and he writes thing down on my little page. What, what, at, what sport, <clears throat> uh, totally make up something. I was like, well, going to walk on the track team in the spring thinking I could totally get out of this, make this guy stop talking to me. And he goes, what events? I'm like, what's this freaking guy in the weight room? Give a shit what my events are going to be. I was like, oh, shot put in discus. That's what I did in high school. Wasn't very good, but I'm going to try to walk on total lie, total fabrication. And he goes, okay. So he's like, my shirt's up and he's doing this thing on me. And he goes, well, how far did you throw? And I'm like, why, you, why is this guy? I was like, well, 42 feet and 134. And he's like, that's not very good. I was like, yeah, I know. I already said it wasn't very good. I sucked. And he goes, well, what'd you get at state? I said, I, I never made it to state. And he goes, okay. He goes, well, my name is Larry Judge. I'm the throws coach at the University of South Carolina. And uh, I'll see you at practice tomorrow. And I'm like, son of a bitch. I've made up a lie <clears throat> to the one person on the athletic or on campus that could call me on like sure. the one guy. And he was like, all right, well, I'll see you tomorrow. He is practice smart at two o'clock. And I was like, uh, yeah, coach, I'll try to make that thinking like, I'm just going to moonwalk right out of this yes. conversation. Like Homer Simpson disappearing into the head. Yeah. Right back in the tree. Yeah. And I was like, okay, coach. Yeah. I'll try to make it. And he looks at me, he goes, no, if you're going to be on the team, you will make it tomorrow. I said, well, isn't that a spring sport? Because I figured I had like a semester to play this game out and still have a weight room. And then he'd just forget about me. He goes, uh, no, son, you're in college now. This is a full-time deal. I was like, oh, okay. 
And then, so I finished up, got my crap and went home and I went back to my dorm room because I didn't have a cell phone at the time. I called dad. He's like, how's your workout? I was like, yeah, good. I think I walked onto the track team. <laughs> he's like, what? And cause you gotta remember, he was like the number one recruited discus thrower in the nation out of high school at who, South Carolina. Who in your dad was? My dad was, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so he was like the guy. So he was the first Soren ever to go to college and it was an athletic scholarship and everything like that. Strangely enough, he actually threw further in high school the same year that Mac Wilkins did. It's weird. So he was like the dude came down to South Carolina. He was their big recruit. You know, so I'd heard my whole life of my dad being like the guy. I never thought of myself in even the same neighborhood. <clears throat> and then I just inadvertently walked on to the track team that he was on, known for. And he's like, hey, you don't have to do this. Like, this isn't kind of like impress me kind of thing. And I'm like, no, I'm, uh... he goes, well, are you going to go? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll show up tomorrow. See what happens. And um, showed up in the parking lot, the Williams Bryce Stadium. We started running. He was, the coach was like, all right, two laps around the stadium, like around the parking lot to warm up. I'm like, fair enough. So I'm running like beside these dudes that were just giant. You know, for me, you have to see, you know, guys are 250 to 300 pounds or giants when you're 170. Yeah. And I'm like, man, you all must be seniors. And both both guys were like, no, we're freshmen. I'm like, I am oh, so Jesus. I am done. And, th and they're like, well, how far did you throw? And I told them, and I was like 43 or 44, whatever it was. And I was like, how about you? And one was like 60 feet. Other guy was like 58. And I'm like, I'd never seen a shot put go over 50 feet. I was like, I am so boned. And um, I don't know. I just said, well, all right, I'll show up and do what you tell me to do. And, and then uh, we hung out that weekend, actually me and those other freshmen. And I was like, these guys are pretty cool. And so I kind of wanted to hang out with them. And they were like, one of them, Wolfie, who's still my friend now, he, he was always like, dude, keep coming out here, man. You're fun to hang out with. I'm like, all right. So Coach Judge would have me, because I had a car, I would have to go pick up all the all the women throwers who didn't, none of them had cars. So I was like the, the Uber driver before there was Uber. And I had to go pick them up at all their dorm rooms and then go by the training room and fill up all the ice and the water to bring to practice for everybody because we didn't have water because we trained in a gravel parking lot. And um, so that was like that for a bit. And Coach Judge would just make me do the shittiest jobs ever. But I also had to do all the training stuff that everyone else did because he was basically trying to run me off. Like sure. I was just dude, this 172 pound guy trying to throw in the SEC. And so he would just load me, load me, load me up. And um, and then he said, you know, I'm not allowed to train <clears throat> with the guys until I could out squat the girls. And I remember the day that I did it, I had to squat 385 for a set of six at like 185 pounds body weight. And that was, I only beat Lisa Misipeka and Don Ellerby by five pounds that day. That's how strong our girls were. And I Dude. remember like, I, I mean, I was like screaming, like, you know, seat at the table. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, I got off the girls rack. Yeah. You know, and then I got to train with Kevin and Wolfie and those guys. And of course they're considerably stronger, but then my goal was, <clears throat> don't make them have to change weights too many times. Just don't be the, don't be the, the weak link in this whole system. And I remember coach judge's brother, Mike came in one day and he kind of took a liking to me. He realized I was like Rudy, which they actually called me Rudy. Cause the movie had only come out like a year before. Oh, so and, not Rudy Reyes. Not Rudy Reyes. Okay. That was, that's a different right, movie. Yeah. Rudy, Rudy, Rudiger. <clears throat> so they would kind of call me Rudy. Cause I was just this little shitty dude that didn't deserve to be there. 
And I remember Mike Judge telling me one day, he was like, man, you guys have to be such a cohesive team and support each other so much and be so hungry. Because we were all, coach was like, I'm going to redshirt the whole group of you. So we just were training freaks, right? <clears throat> so he's like, the whole thing about this is, because every four weeks we would, we would do a rep max. It was, it was our day we lived for. And he's like, here's the thing. You have to be so focused. You have to go up at every four weeks. You have to just blow your PRs out of the water. If you're supposed to get, you know, five reps and one of your teammates gets four, you have to do six. Like kind of the whole idea of like you as a, as a collective team will not fail. You have to have each other's back enough. And I just never forgot that. Like, so everyone was always pushing and holding each other accountable. Like you would get up someone's ass if they didn't get their five. Like you're like, oh, well, you, you did, you know, say you're supposed to get 405 for five. Well, shit, you did 385 for six. Mathematically, you should get 405. Actually, you should probably go to 415 and you should seven it or eight it because do you not want this as bad as I do? And, and everyone, we just did that for years and we were in this bubble and thought everyone thought that way. And then we went to our first SEC championships we show up at as redshirt freshmen. So no one had ever seen us. And I remember walking past the um, walking past the Tennessee coach, Bill Webb, who Aaron Osmus was throwing for at the time. And I heard the coach go, where the hell did South Carolina get a bunch of juiced up bikers? And I was like, this is awesome. And that was like my yes. first time of like, oh, this is branding. Oh, that we could we could do with this psyop when we walk into places. And it was awesome because as freshmen, so we had Brad Snyder came in that year as a true freshman, best guy in Canada. So we took one, two, three at the U at the SEC championships in the shot with three freshmen. And then we took one, two, three, seven in the men's weight, one, two, three in the women's shot, one, two, three, four, five in the women's weight, with majority of us were freshmen and sophomores. Damn. And so we were like, we walked in the first day and we're like, oh, so if you just train really, really hard and believe that everyone is training twice as hard as you, if you just do that and keep your head down and grind and bleed for it, like kicking a lot of ass is super fun. And then that was kind of the basis of all, all of it. And then it was like, oh, now you could psychologically work on other teams as well to the point when later we were sponsored by Oakley and stuff like that. It's kind of funny because WWE was big too. You know, we would walk into an indoor track meet. Every one of us were dressed in black with sunglasses on. And we're like 20 years old, like a bunch of fucking assholes, right? But <laughs> yeah, but you can only do that when you're 20. Right. You can do it when you're 20. Yeah. And we realized like this is awesome. And so we just started playing with the whole idea of like if everyone's going to be these clean cut, you know, by the book kind of dudes, we were going to go in there and just mind screw everybody. And it was super fun. It became like taste and blood in the water. And of course, you know, we got our asses kicked at times too, because some guys could just throw really far. Sure. And, sure. Um, but how, how much were you weighing at this point? How, how, uh, how, much were you, how much were you weighing at this point? So you, you showed up at 170. Uh, my, uh, my first semester, I went from 170 to 200. So I put on weight fast because I actually was able to eat. And then the heaviest I got in college was about 220. Um, so I had a hard time, like I threw most of my college career at 215, 220, maybe 222. And then after I got out in the Olympic trials, I think I got up to 250 one day, but I usually threw at my trials in mid 230s, about what I'm at, a little bit lighter than that now, um, actually. But, um, you know, that was kind of the, the thing was like, that became the, the very addictive part of it was if you put in super, super high amounts of work 
that's fun in itself and getting a PR every four weeks is super great. The camaraderie of everyone pushing super hard and then being able to go to the SECs or whatever meets and knowing that not only that you have a chance of individually doing well, but you're part of this crew that is known as a, like a dynasty crew that is like, if South Carolina was showing up, it's going to be a long fucking day. Like, it's just, we're, we might take the number one spot, but we're going to get our asses eaten and, and it's just going to be a fight. And that, that's in many ways, it taught me how to fight and it taught me how to brand. It taught me how to just do things that later in business life. And if you see kind of the, the route that we've taken, Sorenex has been off the same mentality, right? It was do things differently, work super hard, damn the torpedoes. And, um, and just come in with freaking black sunglasses on and smash. So maybe I didn't change too much. Damn. It's pretty awesome. No, it's, it, it, it's a great story. I, uh, like I've, I've heard you tell it a few times and every time I just laugh of like, you kind of like strolling in here and like being like, Oh, maybe I'll just not notice. And then you run into the one dude who actually can call the bullshit on everything. And like, it, it, it must've been a funny opportunity to like years later be like, so what were you thinking when I, when you were taking, you know, the body fat and going through that? Like, what were you, you know, like, I, have you talked to coach judge about it? Like what was, yeah, was I he trying to get you that, run you off? I saw him at like, uh, well, the funny part was so to answer your first thing, what did he event? Did he like give me respect? Uh, he kind of treated me like the, the redheaded step idiot for like years because he still had his scholarship guys that he brought in. And then after we had some success early on, he was able to bring like the Brad Snyders and these super hitters. in. so it was like, I was always kind of a depth guy. Like I always, I was always expected to be that third through fifth place until like later in my career where like, cause I had to catch up, I had to catch up years. And so, you know, I mean, I, I made nationals like my second year, I was all American, like my third year, whatever, but it was still like, all right. Yeah. You're supposed to like, keep going. And I remember our first comp, my first sec championship, <clears throat> my first throws a foul, second throws a foul. I'm freaking out. Like my first time I really competing at the high level that, that basically I was told if you scored the sec championship, you're going to get some money to go to school. Cause I was out of money. So it was like, there was a high pressure. And I remember walking up to coach judge. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, you're fucking choking. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> You're right. Feedback I need. Like I'm well aware I'm joking. What now? You know, he's like, just relax and do what you do in training. I'm like, okay. And, but that was the first experience I had with choking. And what do you do when the pressure gets high and, you know, and your heart rate goes up and I'm not having to get my heart rate up. I'm, I'm running sympathetic because it's fight or flight and I'm freaking out, you know? And then I go, Oh, when I calm down, I throw within a foot of my PR pretty easily because oh i get this natural adrenaline dump from this you know of course i didn't fully figure that out at the sure. time but you start kind of figuring it out but i had to figure that out at like 18 19 years old where some of probably you figured that out in high school and just because you were actually good you know uh ironically i was six foot 168 my freshman year of high school well so you were you were Almost my same size that yeah. I was my first year in college. Yeah, so I was six, uh, yeah, and and if if I were to, and maybe we'll post the picture, uh, I was I, I I look at the picture and I laugh because dude, my arms were the same size as my wrists, and like I, <laughs> I like remember, oh dude, I was so skinny, and my brother used to always joke. He used to take a, a pencil and he would jam like an orange on top and be like, "This is your neck," and then he would break it. 
and he'd be like <laughs> all, all the time he he'd be like you have a fucking pencil neck and i was just I so it. skinny and i went in and i but i knew and this is pretty interesting i like I like my brothers were all pretty big and strong. Like they, they, they both had played, you know, uh, I was four years younger. So I was a freshman in high school. My brothers had gone and, play, and we were all playing college football. So they were all big, strong dudes. Sure. And I, I just knew that all the big, strong dudes all lit were in the weight room. I didn't necessarily know what they were doing. I just thought that right. maybe like just being around the weights, like getting big through osmosis, just like you're surrounded by weights and they just make you bigger. Sure. So I went in there the first day, never of lifting weights. And, um, we had, to. You know the smartest program in the world. You know you take a bunch of people who never lifted weights, and what do you do? You got to work up to a one RM because we got to find percentages, right? Anyways. Which is is why I absolutely fucking despise percentages and don't use them until people are super advanced. But uh, I go in and we have to max on bench, and um, uh, this dude Matt Redman, who is real big, uh, he goes in and benches like two hundred, and then everybody else benched like one fifty five, one sixty. I bench one fifteen. And, nice. uh, they, they were pissed. Uh, they were like, Hey, you can't work out with us. Cause we don't want to take off the 45s. So I like had my own little yep. bench over there. And like, you know, then the percentage was like 95 pounds. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to max out every day until I can bench 135. So I benched. Yeah. Cause you don't want to be the guy that can't go wheels. Yeah. Like, that's not the thing. No. And, and then you're over there lifting by yourself and nobody wants to, uh, you know, we're not going to take these plates off for you. And I was like, fuck these guys. So uh, yeah. I did 95, then the next day I did 105, and then I did 110, and it took me about seven days to hit 135. But I had never lifted <laughs> weights before. Like it's we had sick. done, like like the only stuff we had done was like in uh, martial arts or boxing, whatever, we just did a bunch of jumping rope and push-ups. Yeah. And like I could do push-ups, but I, I just wasn't neurologically wired up to lift weights. Right. And I Well, was, it's interesting that you said like, the, you know, the fuck these guys. I would say that probably went through my head more times walking in the ring in college because that's how I saw the whole thing. All of you guys are supposed to be really good and you're supposed to beat me. And I'm the shitty kid that came out of Irmo that no one counted. I was never, you know, never anything. And so my whole thing was fuck these guys. Yeah. Like I'm going to send someone home today pissed off that the Soren kid beat them. And that was like my whole just super aggressive. I was like a dog, you know, like when you see like the horses and the dogs just nipping at them all the time, just annoying them. I was like, I'm just going to do that until I knock off the best guy. And it might be in a year, couple of years from now, but I'm just going to keep doing that until guys like, look, I was like, I used to call it apple cart. Like, I want you to have to go and have ride back in the bus with your coach and him bitch at you that I beat you. And then, and then you let that freaking Soren kid be you. I'm like, yes, I want you to have to live with that every time. And then your better guy on your team is going to have to live with it next month. And like, that was just the, what I kind of figured worked for me that, because, you know, I guess there's a part of me that just got tired of sucking. And, you know, I always looked up to the athletes in high school, but I wasn't one. So I'm like, man, I want to be one of those guys and I suck. So I'm just super aggressive and chase everybody down. Eventually they'll submit. Well, if, uh, you know, persistence, I mean, consistency and persistence, like, uh, and, and I, I totally, uh, fucking can, uh, like identify with that. Like I always had in my mind, um, that everybody was better than me and that like, you know, like this chip on the shoulder. And I remember one time, uh, this was like maybe my fourth year in the NFL or it was my, I can't remember. It was my third or fourth year. Um, we had gone in and played really well and I would always call my brother after every game. So I was sitting on the, on the bus. I called him. I was like, Hey man, did you watch the game? He's like, yeah, it was good. And I was like, well, you know what? I, I was really fortunate that I caught that dude on an off day. 
And my brother was like, you've been catching motherfuckers off an off day for years. Why is it that you go yeah. play against guys who are, who are going to be in the Hall of Fame and you just happen to catch them on their off day? I'm like, maybe they just had an off day and that was my day to shine a little bit. And uh, my brother just laughed. And I still remember, I can still see the conversation. But in my mind, I would go out there and be like, this guy is all world. He's going to fucking own me. I'm yeah. going to get embarrassed on TV. Um, yeah. You know, they're going to talk about how shitty I am. And then you yep. go out there and light this dude up and be like, oh, he must have just had an off day. And um, I remember my brother saying to me, he's like, if you can catch dudes on off days for 10 years, I think you're going to be pretty happy with everything. And I was like, well, you know <laughs> yeah. what? Things but, will pan out. But, but yeah, the things will pan out. But what if I catch that one dude on his day? And my brother's like, well, that's, I, I guess that's what you train for. Everybody has an umbrella for a rainy day. You got to know when that's coming. Yeah. But um, that's great, man. That, that, but it's the same thing, right? It's just you're over, you get overly prepared and, and prepared mentally for fights. And, you know, the key is if you're fighting a, a bigger, stronger opponent, you know, do everything you possibly can to, to, to change the, the strategy of it and, and to create their off day. Right. And yeah, I mean, all you know is what you could be, but ready to perform and you just let them do their life and maybe they won't be ready for you that day. Yeah. And then in the training space, um, I was real fortunate uh, in that. Um, like, you know, you hear people be like, well, I, you know, I, I, I peaked out at this. I couldn't break this plateau. There really wasn't a plateau. I like, I mean, dude, so I started when I was 14 and I feel like I got stronger every single day that I walked in the weight room until, uh, you know, they fucking basically, I didn't get a chance to go in the weight room anymore into a, you know, for a professional team. But I remember, right. uh, you know, like I benched. So that first day I benched 135, I benched 315. So I put 200 pounds on my bench. And uh, when I was a senior, four years. So I went from 115 to 315. And then the next year in college, I think in the middle of my second year, I benched 405. And then my senior year, I benched 500. So I went from 315 to 500. So I pretty consistently was putting like, you know, 40, 50 pounds on a bench, went from 165, uh, you know, and then when I went to um, left high school, I was 255. So I put on 90 pounds. I grew from six foot to six four. And then in college, I grew from six four to six six and went from 255 up to about 305, 308 pounds. And so just like every year as I got bigger and stronger. And what was amazing was like we still ran. And I was like, I, um, so I I threw the shot and did some disc. But the only Mm -hmm. reason I did it was uh, Mm -hmm. I wanted to run on the track team because I had this idea that if I could run hurdles, I would be always be fast. So the deal that they made is they're like, hey, we'll let you train with the track team in the off season. You can run with them, but you have to throw the shot in the disc. I think I threw like 48 feet when I was a senior in high school. Further than I did when I actually cared about that. Yeah. So, uh, but like, and and that was just like, hey, come over and throw 10 times. And then I could go back and, and, and run. And I had this vision. I was like, man, I'm going to be a hurdler, which is fucking stupid to me now. But like that, I, I, like we did all this stupid training and like, it was so, I, I loved it. Um, but I had this idea that, um, you know, there's a lot of big, strong dudes out in the world that are sitting Mm -hmm. at bars, that the difference between uh, big, strong dudes and big, strong dudes that are fast is big, strong, fast dudes get a chance to go out and play and get a scholarship and play at a high level. And uh, I always had this like obsession with speed. Um, I remember I, I was in high school and I went to the library and checked out a book on speed training. And then I drove around and I remember I was 16 years old. I drove around looking for a downhill grade on grass. 
So I wow. finally found this like long kind of sloping downhill grassy thing that was over near the high school. And so I'm out there on a Saturday and I'm running downhill trying to get faster. And like my buddies drive up and they're like, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, I'm trying to get faster. I read this book. And like, I think back on this stuff and like, like I'm like, man, like nobody would fucking believe this that like, you know, like literally I went yeah. to the library and you're like, where's the books on speed? And you went and te- like had to go and read this book. And it was like talking about like all these different training principles. Surprised you found one. Uh, well, dude, I was pretty good at the library. I knew my microfiche <laughs> and uh, the Dewey Decimal <laughs> System, you know? And, yeah. Um, but yeah, like reading all these articles and trying to find this stuff up and calling people on the phone. Uh, I was super fortunate to go over and start training with Zangus. Oh um, yeah. You know, and then he had stacks cause he, he advertised in all the old uh, uh, muscle magazines for marathon and uh like all the power lifting everything so he just had stacks of magazines and so we would go over and lift weights and then like when we were done or after you know like whatever we would like sit there for like an hour and read all these old bodybuilding and like fitness mag you know like just like just uh that that's what was so interesting is like uh, like i saw that stuff and all, all i knew was that those guys that i saw there like they were so physically impressive that i mm-hmm. thought like in my mind like that level of physicality would translate to being able to be good at something. And I remember uh, I was pretty young. Like this is before I started, like I went to high school. And the reason I started playing football was because we got to lift weights. But I remember when I was 13, I said to my dad, I was like, hey, I want to lift weights. Like this is really important to me and I don't know why. And he's like, ah, it's stupid. Uh, Idiots do that. They just count to 10 over and over again. So then I convinced my mom to drop me off and she would take me to like 24-hour fitness and they had like the $8 membership. Right. And I went in there and I just like saw big dudes and tried to do some shit and didn't know what I was doing. And I was like, oh, yeah. you know, and like nobody. And I, I remember my brothers were training and like never once were like, uh, you know, hey, fuck, I'll teach you something because they, they were probably trying to figure their own shit out. But I remember <laughs> like it was just it, like I didn't know why. And I remember telling my dad, I'm like, I don't know why this is going to be important. But this lifting weights thing and this training thing is going to be important in my life. And I remember him just fucking rolling his eyes. And uh, Isn't that crazy? Like. I mean, arguably, that's the most one of the most important decisions you've ever made in your life. Yeah. I mean, that's football and this and that, you know, your business now and you're like, it's crazy. That's why I look at pops too and go, gosh, like if that guy would have never put his hands around a barbell, <clears throat> you know. But he was big. I mean, he was what, like 275, 280? No, is- he was light. I mean, oh. early on, like he, the heaviest he got in college was 217. It's 6'4", 6'5". Oh, so he was a skinny dude like me too. Like he was uh 200 pounds in high school. Like he was just a big, tall, skinny guy that, that loved uh, Olympic weightlifting. He was good at discus, but loved weightlifting. And he never correlated the two. He didn't, you know, he was going to the York picnic and York senior nationals and all this other stuff in the mid sixties, seeing Bednarski and yep. you know, Shemansky and all those guys Grimmick, Like he's did all that stuff. And then he's like, I keep throwing this discus thing and it keeps going really far. And I'm going to go back and do some cleans and snatches and uh, front squats. And then he goes, and then this discus thing keeps getting further. And then he's like, in this South Carolina place, ask if I want to go to college. Wasn't really plan on going to college, but I guess that sounds like summer camp. That sounds fun. And so he came down and you look and you're like, dude, it was all because he just loved lifting. There was no big plan. And, um, you know, he's like later, he goes, you know, I never even thought to lift sports specifically for throwing the discus, which was my job in college. 
because it just so happened that all the things I enjoyed doing made me a good discus thrower. Yeah, everything like rate of force development and power and all that. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> wow. I, I want. I got a question for you, John, based off that five hundred number. And Bert, you can throw your experience in as well. Science and practice, big mm -hmm. part of their research is the strength curve where shot put throwers, I believe, is a sport. But they were keep getting stronger, and then as their bench press went the up, the way that the study worked was that they found that uh, it was 200 kilos was the optimal bench press to be able to throw the shot, and the time and the effort that it took for them to get to 230 kilos reduced their rate of force and their speed, and they actually threw the deal less because they were trying to overcome inertia on a, like an 18 pound shot. Did is that what it is? 18 or 16? 16. 16. 16. So, yeah. Go ahead. No, in Go ahead. that, John, you hit 500. And then did you think I got to get more or did your so speed that's, experience that's a really interesting, and fighting come into play? So that's a really, really interesting thing. So I had this idea that I had to be as big and strong. So I squatted 6'10 when I was 19. True. And um, uh, yeah, and I'm, I cleaned. So I full cleaned 172 and a half, snatched 130, and then I basically power cleaned 405. Um, obviously, because it's easier to power clean 405 than it is to actually get underneath 405. Uh, <laughs> totally yeah, like just a big fucking reverse curl. So I had this idea. And so when I went in as a rookie, I got drafted and I got hurt, as you know. And they were like, hey, we need you to get up to like 320 pounds. And I was like, okay. So I started eating a bunch. I stopped conditioning and I lifted weights and I got to the point. I think I benched like, fuck, I think it was 525 for a triple. Yeesh. And uh, I was fucking like 326 pounds, I think, uh, that day that I weighed it. And I was, dude, I was big as a tank. And um, I had this idea. I was like, I'm going to be so fucking strong. I'm going to be like this powerful dude. And then we went out to practice. And I remember they hiked the ball and I took a step back because they had me playing right tackle. No, I, um, was it? no, I was playing left tackle. I remember I took a step back and this dude ran around me like I was standing still, like I was a big planet. Uh -huh. He was fucking orbiting me. And I had right. this like, I, I had this like scared epiphany that like I had somehow abandoned speed for size yeah. and everything I knew about, you know, power to weight ratios and all the shit that I had known, like I had somehow got romanced into this idea that like it's bigger and stronger. And, um, I went back and I remember like mini camp ended and we had probably six weeks off before training camp. Uh, I remember I went uh, back and pretty much ate like a salad for lunch had a little bit of chicken, uh, a little bit of rice, and then I would go, uh, and this was in Tampa, so it was real hot, and um, I would go out and I would run, like just do sprints for like two hours at night. And wow. I ended up coming back at like 306, 308 pounds, which is where I'd always played. And um, my bench came down a little bit, but not very much. And all of a sudden they were like, I thought you were gonna come in 320. And I'm like, uh, you know what, we'll see how this works out. And then I was a starting left guard within two weeks and went on right. and started for the rest of my career. And it was just, and then, so what I figured out was for me personally, there was benchmarks. Um, mm -hmm. I, if I could, I remember it was um, five sets of five, of uh, 495 and 405 on the bench in sub 15 minutes was kind of my deal. Was I would set those up, I'd warm up and I'd do five, five and I'd go back and it was 25 reps, alternating sets, sub 15 minutes. And then if Jeez. I could do uh, 10 dead hang pull-ups with 90 pounds between my waist. And I had all these little tests yeah. That, like I would train the whole off season to get back to. And as soon as I hit those numbers, I knew I was fucking ready. And yeah. so I, I ended up creating this and like I, I stopped getting, you know, like I could still bench heavy, but like it just wasn't as important being able to move 405 for five violent reps 
and being able to do that 25 times over the course of, let's say, seven and a half minutes, yeah. um, that was really important. Uh, the pull-ups was, a, was an interesting one. The sprints and the running. I remember uh, the day we were running, we were running 60s, and Rafael used to run with us, and I almost fucking beat him. I reached out and touched him, and he got scared and kept running. And like that was the day I knew. I mean, I verted, um, I think I was over 30 at the combine, and I was pretty consistent over 300 or over at 300 over 30. So I, in, in, uh, when I was 26, they had just got a bod pod in Philly. And, um, I was the only dude that they'd ever tested at that point that was over 300 pounds, sub 10%. And I was 8% body fat. Jeez. So I was 82, uh, 282 pounds of lean muscle that, in that day. Holy cow. And the guy was like, we've never, and he even said, he's like, we've never tested anybody with this machine over 300 sub 10. And I was like, all right. And I stepped in there and the dude was like, well, this is our first one. I remember when I saw you the CrossFit games, you were right at 300-ish, and you were strangely lean. I remember, like, because I think I was, like, 260 around that time, but I was I was, I was, was carrying more fat because I was going after Highland games, and I was I always had a hard time carrying that much weight, and then I, I went pro, and then it was like, all right, you just got to gain as much weight as possible. These weights are super heavy. <clears throat> There's no running. <laughs> so what I found, like, and same thing, my weights, my, my strength went up, but – my throws didn't get considerably better. Like maybe the heavyweight did because I had more to counter with, but you know, I put on uh, some fat for sure. I remember getting in the, the elevator that day. I'm like, Holy shit, that guy is tall. He's big and he's lean. Like, thanks. I mean, you, you're able to carry that very well, but to kind of talk to your first thing text, I mean, I had strength numbers for me. It was always, I always felt like I was the weakest guy on the field. So it was just like, go, 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 go. And I believe that everyone had these stupid numbers and it turned out like I was relatively strong. I just didn't think it because the guys I trained with were freaks. You know, we had like, again, Brad Snyder, and you'll understand these, this stupidity of numbers, six, five, 265 pounds, 440 hang clean, 429 for a triple, Jesus. 460 behind the neck jerk for a triple at 21 years old. 330 power snatch, 550 raw bench, and 620 for seven in the squat. And we just kind of stopped him there just because. Jesus. Yeah. And then that was my roommate, right? So that was the standard of like, we knew Brad was strong, but like we had Kevin Mannon who was almost as strong. And then we had Wolfie who was almost as strong. And then we had, you know, we had four guys that squatted 620 for seven reps the same day. And so like when I did like, you know, 550 for five weighing 210 i was like i mean like sorry guys i didn't go six plates you know you just don't realize that like you're probably in some relatively rarefied air so i just always believed that you had to be 265 or bigger and stupid numbers and but what i found is later as of my track career one year 2001 i threw really far at like 227 pounds body weight and it was just I just had a good feeling of it. The next year I decided I want to weigh 250 or whatever, weigh 250. The next year I weighed 250 and I dropped like three or four meters. But it was Judd Logan who told me, he said, hey, figure out. He's like, use these two years, 2002, 2003, to get as big and as strong and just pack on that muscle, pack on that strength. And he's like, one year out from the day that you throw the Olympic trials, get to the get within five pounds of the body weight you want to be at when you throw at the trials and stay within five pounds of that. So you get used to the body weight you get you and you're able to, to create a more efficient machine 
instead of going up and down all the time because that changes ratios, it changes balance points. Yeah, leverage. He's like, it get where you're. Yeah, you're good at that. So I decided about 232 to 235. And then I went up like four or five meters that year because then I just got good at that body weight and I didn't lose the strength I had at 250, 260, like maybe a little bit. But that was kind of like you said, your bench went down, but your body remembers what that was like. And your ego remembers what it was like. You're like, ah, I'm not afraid of 525. Like no. I've done it before. Oh, 20 pounds lighter. Yeah, but I've still done it before. Yep. So for me, that was kind of what worked for me, but I had to like ramp up, get big numbers under my belt <clears throat> and then uh, come back down. But it was always, like you said, it was a speed thing. And, and then the, one of the things I was talking to Don Babbitt, who was Adam Nelson and Reese Hoffa's coach, but shot put, I'm wanting to say he was telling me it was about 15 meters per second that a 70 foot shot was, was traveling at. So you look at that and you go, well, even a fast bench press is about one meter per second, yep. like on the tendo. So you're going, it, it kind of makes you wonder, like even doing a, a speed bench, you're still a, such a lower percentage of the, of the speed, the absolute speed that you're moving a, a 16 pound shot. Does it really correlate? And you know, sure as shit, a, a 0.3 meter per second, super heavy bench isn't, yep. um, so it's, it's just really interesting. So what I've kind of learned more is that, you know, the big bench is to build a, a shoulder stability. So you have a, a platform to shoot off of that you have the structural integrity when you're under those, when you're in those positions under that type of velocity, your body doesn't tear apart. Yeah. And that's, you know, in talking to, to Bill Gillespie as well, you know, his he, world record bench presser. Yeah, what, did he bench, what did he do? 10, 10, 50 or something? 1050, 1070, something like that at 61 years old, well, lifetime drug free, like crazy. I right? watched it. Uh, if you look at his leverages, his arm, he must have about a 28 inch arm and he's super barreled. So when I watched yeah. him do it, he was like, pink. I'm like, God damn it. Yeah. He was built to bench. Built to bench. Well, the funny part was, as he and I were talking, he said the most he ever benched in college was 365. And he squatted a grand back in the day Jesus, and, and deadlifted in the seven. So he was first a deadlifter, hurt his back, couldn't deadlift, squatted a thousand, like walked it out with the little beepy thing that goes on your leg that tells you when parallel is mm -hmm. and squatted a grand and then got to the point where he wasn't able to squat anymore. So decided he wanted to start bench pressing, but he knew he sucked at bench. And then over the next 25 years, got to be the best bench presser ever, which is just crazy. But his whole point of how he viewed bench pressing for football, which I'd be interested to hear what you'd say. He said the whole point of it isn't for explosiveness or anything else. It's for shoulder stability so you could express that power that you have with, with a stronger unit, which I thought was an interesting way of looking at it. So um, 14 years old in Zangus's garage, um, I used to just uh, like – I used to ask questions not to be a smart ass. Like, you know, like, oh, why are we doing this? No, I'd be like, why are we doing this? Like, just sure. because I, I had an inherent, you know, desire to learn. And, um, you know, to the Coach point. Judge used to yell at me all the time about that. He was like, stop questioning me. I'm like, I really want to know. Yeah, And, <laughs> and uh, like, like with, uh, you know, I think that's why when I retired and people started asking me about training and performance, I had this really detailed understanding of what worked for me and what I could do. And so when Cross had hit me up and asked me if I wanted to help them, you know, what was it? Uh, uh, 
help them evolve their technology and how to train athletes, which was what Glassman asked me. Hey, can you come help us, um, you know, basically like evolve this technology, which I always thought was an interesting point because I never thought training is a technology, but that mm. changed my whole mindset. But so I'm 14 years old, I'm sitting in there and uh, we, um, Zangus busted out this, you know, Fred Hatfield safety squat bar. And we, and uh, he, I was like, oh, it's pretty neat. It's got a collar on it. And he's like, yeah, it was, a, um, uh, it was invented by a guy, but Fred Hatfield, Hatfield squats. And so he showed us what Hatfield squats. I'm like, well, who's Hatfield? And he said, Dr. Fred Hatfield, Dr. Squat. And then we pulled it. We knew who he was because we had the magazine where he was in Hawaii and squatted that 1042. And he told us the yeah. story about, you know, he was wearing, uh, you know, marathon, um, you know, wraps and the whole deal. And, you know, he also claimed that, you know, there he might have had tennis balls taped behind the back of his knees, which is funny. I asked Fred and he fucking said no. Um, they told me how shitty Georgia suits were. Um, but, but so he, he did, he goes, you know, uh, Fred Hatfield's a big believer in compensatory acceleration. And like, I remember, dude, honestly, like I can, like, this is like a a sliver in my mind. I remember this conversation. And so he mentioned it and like, I was like, Oh, okay. And then I remember, uh, George had two daughters, um, who didn't lift weights. And so he always brought all these kids over, you know, like high school kids that were all pretty big and strong to come over there and train. And so like if his wife and daughters went out, he'd always call on like a Saturday and be like, hey, what do you, you know, after we'd get done training, he didn't ask us when we were training, but later on he'd call and he'd be like, hey, can I talk to your dad? And he'd be like, hey, is it cool if we, you know, go out, I, I take John and the boys out to dinner, which is strange. He's never asked me and dad'd be like, hey, you're going out to dinner with George. I'd be like, oh, cool. So he would take us to this Brazilian barbecue place, which was actually right down the street from the Horace Gracie place, right on, uh, you know, on ah. Torrance Boulevard. And so uh, when we were Pretty sitting there. Typical. Yeah, I was like, man, I remember this. I remember we were eating these steaks, and uh, I asked him, like, what's this compensatory acceleration thing? And he pretty much, in way too many words, that's a lot easier just to be like, his mechanical advantage increases, so does speed. So he, he was like, as you bring the bar down, most people, they press as hard as they can, and then they slow down to kind of get to a, a um, nice and easy kind of lockout. And he's like, you have to be violent with the weights Every time you lift the weights, I want you to try to break them. I want you to literally, as the weight's coming up to where the point where all of a sudden now my strength curve is changing, I want you to continue to accelerate and I want you to try to break the weights. He said, don't lift weights like old people have sex, slow and careful. And his comment to me was like, I want you to be so violent with the weights that the weights or that the iron remembers you and people are nervous like if they like if you're training in an environment oh, wow. and people don't come over to you and say, "Dude, you're gonna hurt yourself," you didn't do it fucking right. So I had this like violence every time I touched yeah. the weight. I was like, you know what? Wait, your iron's gonna remember me, and I'm gonna break this motherfucker. So I started yeah. working on compensatory acceleration, and when I went out to go, and that play, wasn't with any accommodating resistance no. bands, chains, or anything like that. That was no. just break no. That the was weight. just trying to break the fucking weights. Yeah. And then when I would go out there and play, all of a sudden when I would bring back to go punch people. I was thinking compensatory acceleration is mechanical advantage, so to, or as mechanical advantage increases, so to speed. And then I would aim for four inches past the point, which oh. I was just going to punch them. And I would try to punch my hands through their chest. And that was why, I mean, shit, I remember uh, Michael Strahan, when I, when I still, when I saw him at Tony's deal, Stray was like, uh, I used to sit in meetings when they would do scouting reports and they would fucking circle you and be like, if this dude punches you, he's going to fucking kill you. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, dude, he goes, we would go into our scouting reports for the Eagles when you were playing there. They would always circle you and be like, dude, look out for this motherfucker. He's going to hurt you with his hands. 
And um, my hands were fast because I grew up boxing. So we did endless speed bag. So my hands were fast. And my brothers and I on car trips, um, I couldn't read in the car. So we had to find games. But we, my parents would get pissed if we were too loud because my dad didn't like to listen to the radio. So we would just sit in the back and play Buddy Knuckles or Hot Hands. And that's what we would do on road trips. So I got really fast just having quick hands. And I was, and I fought. And then I got to this point where I could move my hands and this acceleration piece. Uh, then, But the, that piece was important. But actually the biggest component for my hand speed and all the other shit that I learned playing football was actually throwing med balls. Yes. So, so that piece, um, Charlie Francis. So when I ruptured my patellar tendon, um, Mauro de Pasquale, uh, put me in touch with Poliquin and all Poliquin wanted to know was, uh, asked me was all the GH I wasn't taking. He's like, you need 18. Right. I use the GH. And I was like, well, I don't even know what fucking GH is. So I hang up with him cause he won't talk to me unless I'm taking 18. I use, I call Morrow back and I'm like, Hey, what's this GH IU thing? And he was like, well, fuck. So then he puts me in touch with Charlie and then I called him and then I, that's how I got into the EMS devices, but also okay. all of Charlie's GPP med ball work. And we started talking about speed and that's where I got all of like the speed stuff we use for power athlete was sure. based on this idea of either you're like, if you want to run fast, you have to run fast. Running slow isn't going to make you fast. Um, you know, uh, and he, he echoed what Zangus said where I, I once asked George, I was like, uh, there was an article about Paul Dillette. You remember that big fucking black dude with like the crazy neck and he never lifted yep. weight over 65% and he was jacked. So I yep. asked George one time, uh, can you get jacked lifting lighter weights? And George was like, if that was the case, why the fuck would we lift these heavy ones? <laughs> Shut the fuck up and go lift. <laughs> and so like all this stuff of like overcoming speed and this, and we did a ton of med ball work and we would fucking throw these things. And to the point where I remember at the Eagles, my offensive line coach was like brought in a camera and he's like, hey, can you film? Um, I want to film all your med ball work that you do with the sets and the throws and all the shit that you do. And uh, he actually made it into clinic film and used to take it to clinics and show and be like, hey, this sure. is, how, you know. Um, all that stuff. So there was like a combination of like, like you said, there was like the compensatory acceleration when I squatted. I mean, I, I like we would go train in other gyms or like, you know, like uh, commercial places or whatnot. And people would be like, you're going to hurt yourself trying to fucking do that. And I'm like, I'm trying to vertical jump this fucking weight out of the bottom for 600 pounds on my, on my back for reps. And, yeah. uh, you know, and then trying to like fucking like clang the weights and try to fucking break these things. And yeah. I think that violence... Um, and you guys have heard me say it before, but like, I never really thought of myself as a football player. I just thought of myself as a master of violence. Like violence is really, uh, like a calming thing to me, like being out in these violent situations. Like, I'm sure you've seen like people start pushing and getting like angry and all these dudes get pumped up. I'm like the dude in a violent situation that gets like an insane level of like clarity and relax. And I'll be like, oh, what's going on? I'm like, we're going to go over there and fucking murder these dudes. You guys well, you got the ta you got the talent and the understanding of it, you know, and, and it's kind of funny. You talk about breaking the bar. That was the same things Pops taught me from day one. And, and I actually got, I want to say in trouble. I think I've said this before. I went to middle school or high school, wherever, I think ninth grade. I went and I was doing like a high pull, you know, clean grip high pull in the like high school gym and the coach, he's like, he goes, well, anybody could do that much weight if they, if they cheat like that. He's like, you got to slow it down and feel the burn. And I'm like, well, so I go back and tell pops. I was like, Hey, uh, coach so-and-so says I got to slow it down. And he goes, he goes, you tell coach that I'll let you train slow when it's better to any sport to be slow, that you're, you're actually better at the sport. If you're slow, he goes, I'll allow you to move the bar slowly at that point. And I went back. And then at that point, the coach 
pretty much didn't talk to me for the rest of my high school career because he thought I was an asshole, which whatever. But the first day I trained at South Carolina, I was doing cleans and I was just ripping the shit out of the bar. And one of the other athletes did say that they're like, oh, you, you're like, slow down because they didn't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. The coaches certainly did, but the athlete didn't. And I'm like, is this like a thing? But that was what dad always told me. He was just like, attack the bar, rip the bar. And then I used to, I used to use the term dent when I would teach cleans. For me, it made more sense if I thought less about pulling the bar and my, my cue was dent the earth. I would push so hard on the earth that I wanted to put two dents in it where my feet were. And so long as I just thought when I, whatever weight I have in my hands, if I'm like Hulk caving in the earth under me, under my feet, generally the bar went up really fast. And um, so that was always, you know, it's interesting. We have some of the similar terminology, but that was always my thing too. I never got really big because I never, I didn't really do hypertrophy work till I was in my forties, real hypertrophy work. But it, or before that, it was just break the bar, move it as fast as possible, you know, bend this $800 Lico bar if you can, because you put so much stink on it. And then, strangely enough, you can generally get pretty good at stuff. I asked uh, George one time about uh, lifting slow, and he's like, don't do that, you'll get splinters in your ass. And I was like, <laughs> why? Uh, uh, and he's okay. like, and he, he looked at me and he's like, from sitting on the fucking bench. Boom. <laughs> He's like, yeah, and, and uh, 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 dude, I am, um, you know, George, George has since passed away. He was like such a salty old gruff dude. Uh, yeah. like I would have loved to have had him on this podcast. He was like oh. the king of these fucking one liners. Like it, it didn't matter if it was eight in the morning or two in the morning. Like he was fucking just salty and would zip off these one liners. Like, so we, when we would go over there, George was in the Navy. And he would make this coffee, which he called, you know, this is how fucking men drink coffee. But it was like this Greek naval coffee where uh, his joke was that the coffee was done when the spoon stood up. Right. <laughs> so he would pour us this black fucking sludge and we would have to drink these coffees. And like I absolutely despised coffee. I didn't drink coffee. I only drank it when I was over there when he poured it and I did my best to try to get rid of it. And then I didn't drink coffee in my entire col uh, like college. And it wasn't until like my second or third year in the NFL, we went to like some nice Italian restaurant and they were like, oh, do you want an espresso or a coffee or whatever? And I was like, oh, yeah. and the guy brought it anyway. And I was like, I took a sip and was like, oh, this doesn't like taste like the, like this doesn't taste like, like this, this doesn't taste like this fucking black sludge. And uh, uh, like it was, it was a real, like I've since now I, I, I can cherish drinking coffee, but it was so funny that like we had to drink this fucking sludge and I remember many times the workouts, like we would get there at nine. Some days we wouldn't leave till two. And George would order sandwiches in the middle of these workouts. Like we would do fucking 30 sets on the squat. And uh, I remember the, the funniest thing was like when he told me, he's like, uh, you know, if lightweights worked, we wouldn't lift these heavy ones. And then his ultimate dig was like if you were in there training and, and you know, like, you know, you got underneath the weight. And like at the time, I don't know if I had you know, at 14, 15, 16 years old, you're thinking about everything else, right? And like, you know, like now I would just basically be able to flip the switch and fucking go in and have that high level of clarity to be able to execute this. But sometimes, you know, as a kid, you know, who knows, we're distracted, whatever. And so like, he would like be like, what the fuck's going on today? Your fucking squat looks awful. I'm like, well, what should I do? He's like, you know what? You should take some weights off and uh, do a form day. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I was like, but I thought you said everybody you know like everybody lifts lights weights well it's the heavy ones that distinguish he's like yeah that's the case why don't you just take it off and have a fucking form day and like he would say that and you'd be like 
okay, I need to get my shit around. I'm going to drink this black sludge and I'm going to go over and, fucking <laughs> yeah. like, you know, turn on the music and fucking pump it up. And it was like, yeah. we were, we wanted to go in there and there was a high standard because he would train with us. You know, yeah. he'd, he'd be in there with his, uh, he'd throw a suit on and fuck, he'd be squatting 800 pounds, you know, like, I mean, so like, I remember the first time I went over there, the, uh, um, I got there a little early and they hadn't unracked the bar. So I was like, man, why are they storing those weights up on that bar like that? And I didn't dream that like actually dudes had squatted that. Like I watched right. these guys pull these monster weights and I like, I, you know, and you see this and you're like, oh. And so every time I see any of the Sornik stuff that's like physical culture, like uh, that word is so impactful because when I think about it, like, you know, going into your guys, uh, you know, uh, uh, fucking Hall of Fame and all that stuff in history. And I think about this culture, I think that that culture is not forged in chat rooms and it's not forged on social media and it's not forged in uh, fucking emails and whatever. It's a 14 year old kid there watching an old man squat 800 pounds, asking him questions and like the smell and like the sound of the iron clinging and knowing that like when I heard that clank, so you know, like even with collars on, you still, if you were doing compensatory acceleration, right, you would still hear the clank. And like, you know, that like click of the, of the bars and like, you know, going in and the chalk and the dust and the smell and like, you know, that fucking, you know, feeling of hitting the bottom and basically breaking blood vessels in your eyes. It's funny before my senior year, uh, prom, I have a picture. My eyes are fucking completely red because we squatted heavy that morning and I blew all the blood vessels in my eyes and like just that type (laughs) of shit where you're wearing that as a badge of courage. And uh, like, like to me, it's that physical culture of like, and I, you know, people are like, oh, you still train weights. I'm like, well, yeah, because um, uh, I like to be physically strong and I like to do shit where like, you know, like I don't need people to help me do things. Like I, right. like that's always been important to me just to be a big, strong dude and not just a big dude, but like somebody that can move and, you know, dangerous individuals. So it's, uh, it's been something yeah. that's, that's permeated through my entire life. And um, it's always cool when you like, you know, uh, like, you know, go to summer strong and, you know, get a chance to go hang out with you guys that like, you're not a fucking weirdo. Well, that's the fun part of talking to, to you about the same thing. And and, you mean, you were further along than I was, but you know, it's the same kind of thing talking to pops, like or watching pops back in the day, or, you know, I remember him tearing people's workouts out of their hands and telling them to leave the gym because they had asked him to write a training program for him. He'd written it. And then he went in there one day and they're screwing around doing something else. And he took it from him. He's like, listen, people know that I wrote your training program. If you're doing all this bullshit, you're going to suck. And I don't want my name on it. I don't want them to think that a Richard Soren trained person was weak because if I wrote it for you, it's going to work. But if you're going to F around and do this, give it back. You go do your own shit. You know, and he did that for years or like, you know, Dusty, who still works for us, you know, I mean, I remember him 12 years old and he came in one day, he was watching us lift and he was like, can I lift with you guys? We're like, no. I mean, for like a year, we're like, no, you could, you could go over there and just watch and just learn. And that was like, when I was at my height, pops was still strong as crap. And the point of it was like, no, you don't get to just jump onto this. Like you have to want this. You have to want to be around this so much. And, and you see the little interactions and how this stuff works. And he'd later say, he's like, the best thing you ever did was not let me lift with you guys because I had to understand what that meant, what that badge was when you're finally led in the group. We know you're now you were held accountable. You're held accountable as everyone in the group. I don't care if you squat 200 pounds or 800 pounds, 
You're a part of the group. And just like Mike Judge said 20 years before, if this guy misses a rep, somebody has to make it up because this is how this is going to roll. And like, that's the stuff that was awesome and exciting. And that, you know, when you get that group that gels together and everyone wants to outlift each other, of course, but then it was also a group. It was a group win if someone smashed a big weight and it was a group loss if someone missed one, you know, that was, that was the thing. Right. And, you know, I look, I mean, it's so funny. I mean, pops, he's 70, almost 71 years old. He had a, he had to get his, um, gallbladder taken out about a month ago oh and um, yeah yeah he's again did he's he take rescued. it out himself he was trying yeah. uh, he didn't want to go to the hospital i'm like but dude something's wrong he's like ah but i think i hit myself with a kettlebell or something i'm like yeah man, maybe let's just get you on in there like you've had a fever for three days let's see what's mm. up you know uh so he had a you know emergency surgery got out and um they told him he had like three or four weeks before he lifted anything over five pounds it's been four or five weeks at this point and I was like, he goes, yeah, kind of sore today. I was like, oh, what's going on? He's like, ah, I just lifted yesterday. And he goes, I went up 50 in the squat, though. And I'm like, of course you did, 71-year-old man. And he's like, yeah, I squatted 200. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm like, you had surgery. I was like, how's those incisions doing? He's like, oh, they're fine. But it was like no change. There, there's literally like he had to go to the hospital for a couple of days and get some stuff done. And then it was, then he was surprised. He's like, I was kind of sore. But I did, you know, I'm doing rows again. And like, you know, like you just, he's just about that life. You know, people mm-hmm. use that term very loosely or inaccurately in many ways, but it's like. Well, they use it just very uh, um, generally or like, you know, like I always think like that's a comment that you use very sparingly. Uh, yeah. Yes. You know, the, uh, and the, the funny thing about your pop, and I, I literally just had this conversation with my mom about an hour ago. Um, people, and I think I stole this from somebody, but I'll, I'll own it. If somebody gives it to me, like people, uh, you know, don't stop training because they get old, they get old because they stop training. And that was the one thing like, so, um, at Zangus's funeral, uh, I guess he had had a, he was, had since been divorced and was living in an apartment or whatever, but he has, he had his weights in there and, uh, he had a heart attack on the bench underneath the bench. Wow. So they came well, that's, in. That's what Pops has said. Every, he's like, and he I was pinned underneath weight and, and, you know, was fucking dead and bloated. And so, like, they were telling the story at his funeral. And, like, you know, like, people, like, my mom was like, was, do you think that was in bad taste? I'm like, no, not at all. Like, that's probably how the man wanted to go out. And, uh, you know, like, like that was what he loved to do. Yeah. And the fact that he was in his kitchen bench pressing and he had a bench in his kitchen is even more fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, you remember uh, Brad and Brad and Wade Gillingham, uh, the Gillingham brothers. I mean, Brad's a, I think he's pulled 400 kilos in competition, like more than any other person ever. Wow. But his, his dad, Gail Gillingham, who was a all-star NFL super monster. He ended yeah, up no, I dying. Remember the name. Yeah. He, I mean, he was one of the first guys in the NFL that were like really, really strong, strong and like lifting guys. And I think he was a Packer and, um, he yep. ended up dying. Packers, yep. Yeah. And he ended up dying a few years back um, in the squat rack doing like 700 something pound partials at like 65 or 70 years old. Damn. You know, and, and, and I'm talking to Brad and I mean, you know, all three of his sons have been professional strongmen, professional weightlifters, this and that. And all of them are like, well, that's how the old man would have wanted it, you know, and you're like, you yeah, know, but, probably. Uh, so. But that's that physical culture thing. I mean, <laughs> they, um, like my dad never lifted weights. He thought training was stupid. 
And, right. uh, but I, I don't know what was inherent about me. And, uh, I, like, I, I think about this way too often, but, um, when I was, uh, so like we were beach kids, man, we were like in junior lifeguards and went to the beach and like went surfing. And like, that was what we did in middle school. And I think I've, I've told the story before, but, um, we were at the lifeguard station and we were actually practicing CPR it was probably like maybe 10 or 11. And, uh, so they, they had this bitching program in Southern California called junior lifeguards and starts at. 10. I think I started when I was nine because I just lied or my mom lied for me. Um, but it was basically, they train you to be a lifeguard. You show up, you run, you swim, you paddle, and you basically just train for the entire day at like a lifeguard. And then the idea is that you start at 10 and then this is kind of like their mentor program. And then when the kids are 16, 17, 18, they become lifeguards. And so this wow. is like the program and it's like all over Southern California. They have it up where we lived in the South Bay in Orange County. And it's like to this day when we were uh, in Orange County, when I lived down there, I would see the kids, uh, you know, they would either, we always wear blue shorts, Orange County wears red, but the white shirts and I'd see the kids on their bikes and skateboard. And it was like, man, it like put a smile on my face that kids were still doing junior lifeguards. Yeah. So we were at the, at the aid station or like the lifeguard station, we were practicing CPR and uh, it was pretty close to where like the strand was, which is like the, the, um, um, like strip of concrete that everybody walks on and rides bikes. And I remember like hearing people like making noise and fussing. And we thought like there was like a, a fight or something. And we just like couldn't figure out what the fuck this like this noise. And these people were like kind of running a little bit, almost like Godzilla was coming. And all of a sudden we see this dude walking and he's wearing like a short pair of gray shorts. Uh, he has a tank top. That's a string tank top. And the dude's chest was so big that like you could have put a Coke on it. And this dude was just strutting down this fucking uh, deal. And we were like, we just got up and we walked over and started following him. And this dude with huge quads just fucking yoked. He had a big beard, big gold chain around his neck. And we were like, like we thought it like was the Incredible Hulk or somebody. Right. And he fucking turns around and stomps at us. And we were like, <laughs> like this. Uh, it, was, uh, it was Lyle Alzado. No way. Yeah, it was Lyle Alzado. Oh, that's his awesome. fucking biggest. And he lived in our town. Um, we used to see him driving around in his Rolls Royce convertible fucking trying to hit kids. He's just a fucking asshole. Um, but kids. oh yeah, dude, he totally almost hit me and my brother and our buddies on our bicycles one time. We were like like basically like rode our bikes across the car a crosswalk and he fucking like almost took us out and we knew it was him because he had a black uh, like a black Rolls Royce convertible. And we had black wheels. It was all black, and he had a Raiders thing on it. Oh, so douchey for the 80s. Um, sounds but, pretty awesome. Yeah, right? that sounds amazing now. Uh, <laughs> but seeing him, like, I I was like, I I don't know why. that Like, I want to lift weights. Like, that was, like, the yeah. moment in my head when I saw that dude. The fact that, like, people were running from him, like like a Japanese tourist running from Godzilla, as this dude was just strutting. And, like, I was like, holy shit. Like, I didn't even yeah. know people could look like that. And I remember thinking, isn't like, it so? Isn't it so? Like, it burns that into your mind. Like, I remember as a kid, you're, you're watching like the, I think it was WWE at that time, WWF maybe. I don't remember what WWF. And I remember Nikita Koloff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just super jacked. And I remember like all the like all the the, the popular like the Rock and Roll Expresses and all that. I remember my, my dad like, but look at the traps on Nikita Koloff. That guy actually lifts, and that was like his favorite dude, right? Yeah. And then, of course, like basically Goldberg is just a 90s version of Nikita Koloff. Yeah. But I remember as like a 10 year old kid, my dad, you know, we watched wrestling and Nikita Koloff was the guy. <clears throat> and he was showing me pictures of Pizarenko mm. doing bowls and then telling me Bill Kazmaier stories. 
And he told me a story about when, and I, I think it was 1980, he was at, I think the, that was when he was at the Playboy uh, Club in, in uh, Jersey uh, for World's Strongest Man, when Mike Bridges squatted a grand on the pool deck. Um, and he said he was sitting in this restaurant and he said all of a sudden he could just hear like, like um, spoons and forks just dropping out of people's hands. And he was like, he says like a movie, you just hear this, you look up and he said it was literally people fall like this and their their forks were falling out of their hands as bill kazmaier yeah. came through the restaurant with the tank top on 1980 and he's like we'd never seen a human carry that much mass and he said it just literally and you remember people weren't there for world strongest man they were like at the playboy club like normal 1970s 80s dudes and chicks and he's like he walked through and he goes i've never seen it before or since people literally dropped their forks they were so just they did. They were in awe of the human that could look like that. So and I remember hearing that, like that is awesome. <laughs> George was the Thompson powerlifting coach, and Kaz was okay. on their team. So what's interesting is when we met, when I saw Kaz at Summerstrong, he had come over, and it was pretty interesting. As I was trying to recount the story, he didn't remember it at all, which is another time I was like, "Hey, when I was a little kid, you pulled up in this white Cadillac." He's like, "I never had a white Cadillac." I was like, "No, you had a blender in the back and food and." He's like, no, I I'm like, all right, fuck. I, well, here we go. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, uh, yeah, here we go again. Trying to find, so like that's why if I see people I saw a long time ago in some famous way, I'm like, I'm right. not going to retell them the story because they think. But he he knew George, and um, he's like, oh yeah, you know, I, I you know this, and he he, he we were kind of sharing some stories. But I always remember t uh, George telling me that Bill Kazmaier was by far the most physically impressive human being to ever walk the earth. He said, um, and I always remember this. He goes, if you see his hand. He said that from his knuckle went straight down. There was no dip in the wrist. It was literally just like a straight oh, piece. Yeah. And he goes, his joints and like he goes, you know, his wrists. And he'd always talk about Kaz. Um, he was like, he was just, <clears throat> he goes, God put him here to to be Kaz. And nobody will ever come before him. He was like, if he lived a thousand years ago, we'd be talking not about Milo, but about Kaz and, my, and Kaz's bowl. <clears throat> and that yeah. was... You know, and it, it was really cool to meet him at Summerstrong. Um, the thing with Kaz, and I think Kaz has played the role of Kaz so long that I wonder how long it takes you to crack through the Kaz into probably just build the dude. It's rare. It's rare. You know, I, I've cracked through a time or two, but but I, I agree with you. Um, you know, it's it's he's been the Kaz, and and I think there's a time too, like. <clears throat> Personally, I think you get to a time where it's almost impossible because the self talk of who that, whether it's the Kaz or Rudy or any other larger than life, the breeze, larger than life yeah. feature person is, you know, I think there's a fear in some ways of do you let that person go and will they ever come back if you do? Well, you know? like Rudy's an interesting one because he's such a, you know, uh, love him to death. I mean, but oh, just man. like such a tortured soul in so many ways. Like I was laughing the fact that they put him on Call of Duty. And uh, so now they have a Call of Duty Rudy character. I mean, it only makes sense. Which I, I actually kind of always thought he was in Call of Duty. I didn't know that they like this. I was like, oh, Rudy wasn't the main dude in Call of Duty. But like I, I sometimes wonder if you become the purveyor of your own lore, how mm. that becomes kind of an in interesting thing. Like... Um, they've heard me say this on the podcast a million times. My dad always said, Hey, uh, look out or what was it? Uh, don't ever get to the point where you're holding your fan club meetings in a phone booth. Interesting. Right. Which is like, don't be your biggest fan. Like, you know, yeah. and, and sometimes these guys who are legendary people, 
uh, who, you know, Kaz is a legendary dude. I mean, anybody that's ever watched World's Strongest Man, like watches those like 80s World's Strongest Man is like, if you fucking took a time machine and put him here today, he'd still fucking win. Uh, other competitors wouldn't show up. Yeah, well, they didn't, right? I mean, they made him stop because he yeah. was winning too much. I yeah, mean, but he was like he was 12 just, years in a row. They were like, nobody can even t- touch this. Yeah, he's just that guy. I mean, you know, think about Rudy, like, love that dude to death. But, you know, you think about, you know, he didn't even need to be in Call of Duty. They could actually make a video game that is just Rudy's regular life. <laughs> <laughs> like Super Mario Brothers. Like, bing, he jumps over a turtle. Bing, he eats a mushroom. Yeah, right. Bing, Rudy's he gets gold coins. a giant uh, barrel-throwing monkey right now. You know, yeah, you can have, like, different boards or different phases of Rudy's life, which would be a wildly interesting, like, narrative. Um, I, I mean, it would probably be impossible to win. <laughs> Uh, dude, I, uh, uh, we'll take the over under how long it takes. So the, uh, the nuding up thing is just kind of, a uh, like that, like that was an NFL thing. Be like, yo, 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 don't nude up around me, which was <laughs> like, you know, like you're in your lockers and all of a sudden, like you turn around and a dude's fucking asses in your face. You're like, God fucking take a step back. If I'm sitting here, don't nude up in front of me. But I wonder what, how long it'll take Rudy to all of a sudden get into his uniform, which is usually uh, Ranger panties and lack of uniform. Yeah, lack. I mean, that's his uniform. Like, if I see him with a shirt on, I'm like, "What's going on here? You need to get that thing off right now." So, yeah. Tex, what I need is when Rudy goes Ranger panties, you nude up and you go right with him. Oh, I like it. Or you, you're the catalyst of the whole thing. You show up with Ranger panties. And then see how long it takes him to respond. I told you the story about when Derek was at the house. Yeah, when you guys got in the spa and he's like, "What? oh, wait a minute, we're just not wearing these underwear around? <laughs> like, I'm surprised he didn't come out in underoos. Yeah, yeah, he went to like to the bathroom or something. And we're like, yeah, let's jump in the hot tub. Oh, I got some silkies and we put them on and we're standing in the kitchen getting ready to go in. And he walks out and he's like, oh, we're doing silkies? And then he like goes, I'm like, well, we're getting in the spa. He goes, okay like it was like no that was just he thought we were standing in the kitchen in silkies right there but i loved i oh, loved the fuck. fact that he bought in a hundred percent and he just just was like if this is what we're doing i'm in like that's the i mean rudy is just awesome in a hundred different ways but i just loved it if, if it's like hey rudy we're gonna climb everest right now with a donkey tied to our back he's like we're doing that i'm like yeah we're doing that he's like roger that and he'll go and you're like wow the guy actually made it I, I, dude, uh, I still remember seeing the videos of him and beyond when they were in Iceland and like yeah. running through those glaciers and like, uh, hearing the story. I can't remember the cat who was the beyond guy. Um, but I like, ah, fuck, I can't Rick. remember. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I remember, was it summer? Like, I, I can't remember where we hung with that dude, but him telling the story, strong one, was, it, probably. Was, was that what it was? <clears throat> and, uh, him telling the story of like them on a glacier with Rudy and they're like, hey, you know what? Like, uh, as Rudy just takes off running, and they're like, you know, if that glacier breaks away or there's a hole, we're never going to see him again. And they were like, oh, let's make some great video. And like, zero fucking, like, like not an ounce of uh, hesitation in Rudy being like, oh, yeah, you might die. Sounds good. I'll see you there. Uh, there'll be another adventure on the other side of this thing. And like, <laughs> that, uh, like, man, um, I wonder. Uh, and I sometimes like wish I was more Forrest Gump and not so reflective and not constantly analyzing right. everything to just be like pin your ears back and fucking go. It's a skill set. I mean, I wouldn't even say a skill set. Is, is it a gift? Is it a curse? I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just why they make cer- certain people that way that to do the things that the rest of us can't. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, dude, but, think about his talk at a, a Power Athlete Symposium. Where he fucking all of a sudden ends up with like David Bowie 
You're an age daydream, man. I've said, dude, there's a picture of you and I sitting next to each other with just like, (laughs) you're so happy. (laughs) I I, like to this day, like, well, we should link that up in the the show. It is available on YouTube. I'll link it up. That talk and like nobody knew where he was going and somehow he wrapped it all up and Woodski leans over and he's like, if there was a spaceship outside and Rudy, you know, like everybody would go get on with Rudy right now. Like it's like, yeah, because if he turns out, like we've said before, if if it turns out that he is in fact an alien or just like a Tyler Durden situation where he doesn't really exist. And he's just a just, figment of everybody's imagination. And we're all yeah, seeing it, the same person. Yeah, because we've just all we've all decided that this is a person that needs to be in the world. And we've decided collectively as a group that Rudy Reyes is a person. Yeah. It makes probably more sense than him actually existing. Dude, that day when we picked him up for our podcast. Uh, he comes walking out of this dude's house at like 10 in the morning. He's got no shoes on. He's wearing women's jeans, no shirt, and drinking like uh, a huge tall boy. Modelo, right? Yeah, Modelo tall boy. And he gets yeah, in the car. so on brand. Uh, and like it gets in the car and we go do the do the podcast. And like, I, like I'm sitting there and people are like, well, how do you know they were women's jeans? I'm like, because uh, they don't make men's jeans in capris with, with like flowers on them. And like, I mean, they, they were looked good. I don't know who he stole them off them, but I mean, goddamn. And then I yeah. asked him, he's like, well, women's clothes just seem to fit better. And I was like, oh, all right. Well, I'm, well believe me, nobody's going to like rip on you for it. It's like you're not going out and be like, hey, nice women's jeans, you homo. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, I yeah, mean, I mean, yeah. Like like that doesn't exist. I mean. You know, yeah. I mean, then, like, then he goes jaguar on you. <laughs> oh, yeah. He goes all spider monkey. Next thing you know, you got like 27 punches in the face. But man, like, <laughs> oh, my God, dude. That guy. I uh, yeah. Like there's funny things like I, you know, and that's what I was such a bummer about last year, you know, because of, you know, thanks, China. Thanks, Rona. Um, get to, you know, we have no summer strong. Uh, because it's almost like that replugging in, man. You get the chance to like see all your friends and everybody and catch up and just be like everybody just slips back into the same fucking deal and you're like, yes, the world has not yes. changed. Rudy's going to be crazy. John is going to observe. Yeah. Matt Vincent is going to have strange commentary and Derek is going to tell you something later that blows your mind about the entire situation. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, like seeing Gunner and, uh, uh, is always yeah. good. And yeah, no, it, it's it, it's always cool to to see what you guys, I'm so stoked that it's coming back. So It's going to be, it's going to be fun this year, man. Like, you know, it's two days instead of three. We wanted to make sure that we kind of condense a little power punch. You know, sometimes on the third day, you, you get some walking wounded by the third day. And sure. so we're, and we're trying it out this year a little bit, you know, with the the lockdowns, shutdowns, the Rona and all the other nonsense going on, you know, just don't want to, you know, want to give people a chance to, to travel back home. And so I think it's going to be awesome. We're, we're going to have a little bit more, few less speakers, few more open times, because you know, in in a way, we feel that's what the world needs now more—just an op- opportunity to connect and see each other face to face, and share those laughs and and share those stories, and just more of that camaraderie versus, you know, sit in a chair and and hear an amazing presentation. But at some point, like the, the real gold of it is getting to to talk behind the scenes, you know. And so that's what we're looking at more this year. Uh, do you have a list of the speakers? I, yeah. I know it's on the website, uh, uh, but. Yeah, so we got, I'm looking back at my thing. We got uh, Kyle Carpenter. Um, I believe you know Kyle, uh, Medal of Honor recipient. He was at Winter yeah. Strong. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, if you ever have anyone's like, yeah, I jump on a grenade for that guy. Well, that guy did. Um, his story is uh, like when I saw his name pop up, I was like, oh, man, this is a great dude to have. I mean, dude, yeah, 
fucking balls the size of a, a fucking brass balls you bring in a dump truck. Uh, yeah, in a dump truck. And yeah, exactly. I, he he's one of those people that still just it freaks me out being around him, not because of his celebrity status, but just <clears throat> you know, if, if if you and I were hanging out and I had to decide in the next half a second I was gonna die for you. I may give me a second to work the, the math out. <laughs> like, you know, but when you have zero seconds and that's the decision you make, that to me blows my mind out. And and I, I look at someone like that and I go, I'm not the man you are. I'm just not. And which is nothing against another. It's just like this utmost respect to going, gosh, you you're, you did something that I don't believe I could do. Um, or I don't know. And hopefully I won't have to figure that out, but he's just a whole different animal. Uh, we have Stephanie mock, who's a great strength coach and friend of ours. We have coach Luke day. Who's a strength coach at South Carolina. Uh, who's changing the game in many ways of how he's coaching. I really love that. You have uh, Virginia high performance. So Alex Oliver and Danny are coming back and going to do some different presenting on how they're, they're working that system. Uh, old Tony Blower. Uh, I know you know Tony. Oh yeah, real well. Yeah, he's been an yeah. alum of Power Athlete Radio. Always like, uh, I mean, nobody knows more about fear than that dude. Yeah, exactly. So that was going to go with the no fear, and and uh, I think it has some, as you well know, some amazing implications into the, the sporting world as well as the tactical sure. population and just regular world. We have Mike Schrock, uh, who's going to be doing. Uh, you know, he's retiring this year. Uh, I think he's been a strength coach in close to fifty years. Wow. And uh, he's retiring. And what I ask of him is give us the cliff notes, the do's, the maybe do's and the never do's that you learned in 50 years of doing this. And um, so I'm really interested in seeing that. Uh, we got Ben and Owen Franks, who were yep. all stars that played for the All Blacks. Also a uh, power athlete alone. There you go. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we attract good people. Um, Derek Woodsky who you can't go wrong with, who yep. is one of the, one of the, uh, another power athlete alum, who's yep. probably that three hour you guys did was last summer was one of my favorite uh, podcasts y'all ever done. Yeah, no, it was excellent. <laughs> I always enjoy talking to Derek. He, uh, uh, he's got an interesting commentary and his point of view is always just really, really like thought provoking, you know? Yes. Yeah. I've said it before talking to Derek's like taking medicine that tastes like candy. You know? <laughs> I like it. Um, and you got Bill Gillespie uh, with Jesse Ackerman. So two awesome strength coaches, two different backgrounds, and they're going to kind of compare, contrast their thoughts on strength culture and how to achieve it in different methods, which I'm interested in. And last we have uh, coach Tommy Moffitt from uh, LSU and multiple other places and coach Aaron Osmus. <clears throat> and that's an interesting one because Aaron, many people know obviously who he is, but he was Tommy Moffitt's protege when Aaron was a shot putter uh, at Tennessee and, and Moffitt was one of the strength coaches. So the stuff that Moffitt was doing with the Tennessee football team and that later built his system out more so, he was trying out on Aaron Osmus mm. back when he was in college. And so part of this is going to be what I learned from Aaron Osmus and what I learned from Tommy Moffat, because in talking to Tommy one day, he told me, he said, well, Aaron might say he learned a lot of stuff from me, but I learned a lot of stuff from Aaron through this, 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 and this. So kind of a tying together the strength roots of those two trees and realizing that 
they've learned from both from each other. And even Moffat told me, he goes, heck, I still call Aaron often, you know, monthly and I'm learning from him now, where is he, he used to be my pupil. So there's uh, those are the, the 10 sections that we're doing. We got some more free sections and some things like that, but we kind of have a little bit more of a strength coaching base to it this year. Um, you know, just kind of get back to some of the basics and give people a, a chance to, to connect. Nice. Excellent. No, dude, I'm super, we're super stoked. We're coming in force. So yeah, we're definitely, yeah. uh, we need you know, to get you back on, we need to get you back on the rotation, um, here. And then also I want to do a, a podcast with you. You're on my list of people that I want to bring on the Sornex podcast. Sweet. Uh, do you, do you want to do um, it when, uh, when I'm in town? I'd love to do it in person. <laughs> if we have time, I yeah, know that you're always that, so busy, dude. Yeah, that no, one might it. be a, a maybe. We are bringing. I, we got some like old vintage Airstream trailers. Nice that uh, that Zach was selling, so I bought them off of him, and so we're going to set them up as our swanky podcast studios in the parking lot. Oh, badass, badass! No, I, yeah, I dude. I side note, I love Airstreams. I've always loved them. I remember as a kid seeing people like dragging them behind, yeah. like, and uh, they're they're super neat, like the architecture. Uh, I went and looked at a few of them. I mean, they're they're pretty neat, man. Well, you had a wild idea to turn our yeah. I was basically mobile. gonna put a. I was gonna buy one and actually move the office when we were talking about cool. doing an education pod here. We were gonna do it in Power Athlete, so all of our friends in the neighborhood, when they close the schools, wanted to oh, do an cool. education pod. So I was like, hey, we'll give them the office. We'll just get an airstream and hang outside, and then wow. uh, <clears throat> and then that fell apart pretty quick, <clears throat> which was good because. Um, yeah, like it, it, it was uh, about a few days of trying to figure it out and then realizing that uh, trying to find the teachers was like, uh, and that's when we ended up sending our kids to just a private school that yeah. was, like, was really good just because the public schools were shut down and then they didn't go back full time until January. And mm. our daughters go to a small private school and they've been in school the full time, which is good. But no, yeah, I definitely. Same, same with ours. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely love Airstreams. I think they're so cool. I uh, every time I see them, they just look like like traveling Coors Light cans. Like I'm just yeah. like, man, they're so bitching. Yeah, we got, I got a, a 1976 um, a 31 foot land yacht. So oh, dude, those are bad. Yeah, it's the same. It's as old as I am. And then we got a 1975 Argosy, and so they're made by Airstream. I don't yeah. know if you're familiar with them. Yeah, but they're they they're like, the more square ones. Well, they're still the, the circular circular looking ones, but they're colored. So it's like um, it's oh, like shit. a teal and a white. So they what's that called? An Odyssey? An Argosy. A R G O S Y. Argosy. Oh, I'll send you pictures of it. But so what they did, they said in the seventies, Airstream was trying to kind of like reinvent themselves a little bit, and because they wanted kind of a swanky, disco-y kind of different thing with colors. But they also said they were too expensive to make the big rounded parts because they're like hand done. Mm-hmm. So what they did, they they were able to stamp them, but they had they didn't have the same finish of, for the rounded part. So they figured out if they painted them, they could cover over. They basically could use like the seconds that they would do the normal airstreams, and they turned them into these things called argosies. But they painted them, and so it was kind of like the, it was like new Coke, right? Mm-hmm. They came out like here's the new airstream called the argosy, but they were a little bit less expensive because they wanted to keep the airstream as their like top premier model. Sure. So they were like a little bit more basic. They were colored and probably for the wives that like didn't want the airstream to, you know, but kind of deal. But from what I understand is they become like wildly collectible because oh, yeah. they were kind of this thing just for a while. So we got a 75 Argosy and a 76 airstream. Oh, badass. And, um, Dude, be, the, the, the old ones are pretty cool. Like I've looked at, like I looked at like a 2005, I've looked at a bunch of different ones 
And the older ones, when people get the old ones because the quality was so good and they redo the subfloors and they redo them, I looked at, I've looked at some pretty cool ones. Um, I, I want to say, is it the Airstream International is like the top? I remember looking at like a 2018 31-foot International, man, and I was like, 127 grand. I'm like, that seems like a good investment. <laughs> That's a good investment. Oh man. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, you just got to be like, Hey, I'm hooking the truck up. Get in kids. Don't worry about it. We'll stop when we hit fucking you know, Yellowstone. Yeah. And Yuma. Yeah. That was kind of the idea. So it's a 31 foot. I think it's an international, they call it the land yacht. It's a yep. sovereign land yacht. And, um, I mean, I got it considerably less cost, but everything's original in it. Refrigerator oh, still works. I love Stove that. still works. I mean, it literally looks like you walked into this in 1976. So it's going to be like well, uh, walking back into the home we grew up in as kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was the coolest part because you walk in and you're like, holy crap. This I is... remember shag carpet. Yeah, and it smells like this. Because remember when we were at the Black Rifle Ranch? Like, did you walk in that yeah, place? Yeah, no, oh, yeah. No, yeah. Super dude. cool. It's a time capsule. Yeah. Uh, well, I, um, cool. so, so years ago, I... Uh, uh, one off season, I went to Graceland and, uh, oh, nice. like when you walk into Elvis's house, he has this jungle room and yeah. he had this, like, it was a redwood table. Their coffee table was like a slice redwood that had been varnished and it had these wrought iron legs that were kind of curly. And that was our coffee table growing up. And I know this because like I, I, dude, I split my forehead on it and I like freaked out, took a picture and I hit my mom up. I'm like, dude, that was our coffee table. She's like, well, yeah. Why do you think we had it? Everybody had that coffee table because Elvis had it. Oh no. And I was like, oh, I'm like the fact that like people would decorate their homes based off of what Elvis had. And I was like, holy shit, we're pretty far away. But uh, yeah, like shag <laughs> carpet. And like, I'll look at these pictures from our old house and I'll be like, oh my God, paneling on the wall. My mom's like, that shit was yeah. cool back then. Like it's awful yeah, right? today and you guys are laughing, but that's how people rolled. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Cause remember that house had all that wood paneling everywhere. Yep. It had a freaking leopard skin or like a faux leopard weird circular sectional couch is like this place is gnarly and you saw like all the all the uh, astronauts are hanging out there yeah. i mean you're 1966 astronauts those cats were doing that before the moon landing yeah. they were parting their ass off of that ranch well good thing there was no uh uh social media to fucking out these guys i always think man exactly. like uh social media has uh, like there was probably so much like like um if you read the book on uh, kennedy uh so kennedy um hired basically prostitutes as his press agents. And then they would get uh, like intern girls that they would basically just go in there and court as like, you know, for, for whatever. And then they would go to the pool every day at two o'clock and it was like Kennedy and like these hookers and all, you know, basically free for all. And so much so that Jackie O actually, when he was gone on a trip, had it demoed and turned into the Rose Garden. So if you go to the White House, and I had uh, a couple years ago, Dave Spanton, when we were in D.C. for a uh, um, meeting with uh, fucking the, the military thing on that deal we did, um, we had got an opportunity to do a West Wing tour. Uh, yeah. So we got to go in and see the White House and like, you know, like the Oval Office and do that, which was bitching. But we got to walk out to like, you know, and I had read all this history on like JFK and the White House and all that. So it was super cool to go back and see some of like, you know, uh, some of the paintings and some of the things that are not, you know, you can't take pictures and, you know, just some pretty amazing art in there. But, uh, as I walked out to the Rose Garden, I was like, Oh, now I get it. And so, yeah, he would have his orgies and was, you know, having these free for alls with all these hookers and everything. And Jeez. they didn't write that book until years later today. 
shit, that would not like right later that day. Yeah, like yeah. six minutes later, there's somebody posting a selfie, and next yeah, thing it's the a, president's getting trouble for golfing. Yeah, yeah, and, and right, Kennedy, right. Kennedy's back there orgy. having yeah hooker orgies with you know <laughs> six martini lunches, you know, with uh, you know, it just dude, like such a different time, such a different. Did know, you and, see that? Uh, there's a picture in there of Jackie O. It's in one of those hallways in the in the White House. I took a picture. We were there for a Christmas party this past year, yep. and it was just this wild. It was just super, like, I had to put it. It just had a lot of depth to the picture of, of but Jackie O was in there, and it was uh, so. Leslie and I got invited this year to the White House Christmas party, which is super cool. I've never been there, yeah. And um, but yeah, just just an interesting place, and you know, and by today's standards, I mean it sounds very strange even saying, like, the White House isn't like super obviously like posh right i yep. mean it's kind of it's just it's a big house and it's of course very nice and it's nicer than anything i live in of course but you know you see these mansions these baller ass mansions these days you're like white house looks like it was made in the 50s what which, uh you guys were in the west 1850s. wing uh in, in the west wing i always wonder what the um the private uh like the private wing where the family lives you know like I know yeah, we were by the like the library and all this, yep. you know. Um, I took some a couple of pictures. I'll I'll send you uh, from the library. It was kind of interesting. A couple of the books I saw. Yeah, the um, uh, as you're walking down that hallway to the Oval Office, uh, there's all those. Um, God, I can't remember the name of the artist, but he's the guy that. Uh, but there's Remington? like, with, no, well, there are Remingtons in there, which is pretty cool right. with that eagle. But it's uh, it's like uh, somebody was the cartoon sketcher. Um, he he's Time Magazine, super famous. So I'm totally blanking on his name. Sure. But it's basically all these people waiting in line to see the president, and it's a series of four paintings. Um, God, I and like I I wanted to snap a picture, and they even said beforehand like don't snap a picture. But uh, wow. there's some just really it it was. Um, it's it, surreal. Well, it was super cool when we got to walk in the Oval Office because the first thing you do is you start looking and being like, well, there's no corners in here, so where in the world did Bill Clinton get a BJ? Because in <laughs> in that thing, he made it like, like they, they couldn't see, like, like it's, like you're, you're looking and you're like, he must have got this at the desk because like there's no corners in here. There's nowhere to hide. Like there's a flag. There's nothing on the walls. Like there's no I'm sure. It, I'm sure whatever he said, it, it happened just like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, dude, uh, so years ago uh, when I was at the Eagles, we had um, uh, this uh, sports psychologist, uh, Kevin Elko. Uh, real famous guy. If you guys look him up, I think it's KevinElko.com. So Elko would come in and he would just kind of talk to us a little bit. And I remember sitting down with him and we were talking about like the idea of like, you know, relaxing and, and just being like focused and whatever. And he made a good point. He's like, you know, um, when you when you're in a stressful situation, I just want you to think presidential. And I was like, OK, why presidential? He goes, well, think about this. Bill Clinton is being impeached. He's on trial. And they ask him if he got a BJ in the White House. And he goes, no. All of a sudden, Monica Lewinsky shows up with this dress, his proof and whatever. His fucking heart rate and his demeanor absolutely never changed. And like all of a sudden, he had, he got outed. And he's like, Bill Clinton, he's like, just think about that pressure, like that level of presidential. And, uh, you know, the, and he even said, he goes, you know, Clinton, um, absolute sociopath. He goes, oh, you know, yeah. uh, sociopathic, the ability to be able to lie and like, you know, and he goes, it's really the mark of a great politician. He goes, honest wow. people and people that, you know, wear their heart on the sleeve, don't do great as politicians. Bill Clinton, complete sociopath. And uh, he's like, so wow. when you go out there, think about being presidential. 
And I always fucking, to this day, I still laugh about presidential and Kevin Elko. But yeah, just, uh, it, it was so cool to go there and like see the history and like the Resolute Desk and all like, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, I saw it, it just, you know, and then like there's a, uh, I, I was always a Ronald Reagan fan. Like to this yeah. day, uh, some of Reagan's quotes, like I, I used it the other day on the podcast, the scariest words you'll ever hear is I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, here to help you. <laughs> and uh, so like Reagan, like it just, the thing I appreciate about Reagan is obviously he was an actor. But he could go on Johnny Carson and he was charismatic and talk and this and, you know, he all of his speeches. And my dad, um, he was involved in, you know, the Republican Party in California. He knew Reagan um, and wow. always said, he goes, you know, Reagan was so charismatic. He goes, I don't know if he was nearly as smart as Richard Nixon, because to this day, my dad said probably the smartest person he'd ever met in his life was Richard Nixon. He's like, really? yeah, he's like Nixon was an absolute fucking genius. Um, but he said huh. Reagan was good looking. He was an actor. He had money. Um, he, he was charismatic, could deliver. If somebody could write the words, he could deliver them like his own. And he goes, and that's what, and he goes, at the end of the day, that's what makes a great politician, not necessarily the policy, even though he surrounded himself with really sharp people, but he's like the ability to be able to deliver it in such a way that people think it's your words. Wow. I, I was at a, um, Vistage thing a few years ago, and they had the, one of the guys that I can't remember his exact context, but he worked for Reagan during those years. I believe he was at the CIA, but he was telling us kind of the, some of the secrets behind the Reagan deal. And he said what Reagan's one of his strengths was that he never hired people that were like him, and he always hired people that would disagree with him because he wanted the best people around him, and he wanted people that weren't just mouthpieces for him and which i thought was always very interesting from a leadership standpoint because a lot of times you know pride or fear or whatever it may be it's like let me get a lot of people that are like-minded and that's a good thing for building a culture in some ways but for making big decisions you want the opposing views well you never um, want to be like uh um blazing saddles you know when he's like sitting around and he's like i didn't get a harumph out of that guy you know harumph 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 like he's right exactly yeah. and, and you know and i i've i've you know, my COO, I call him my no guy. Like mm -hmm. I ask him, you know, I want his first answer to be no when we talk about things. And then because it always causes me to like have to back up my theories and stuff like then we get having good conversations. You know, it, the hard part probably is you've experienced as well as being like the top guy is most people say yes to you because you sign their paycheck. Sure. So it's good to have someone that pushes back text <laughs> but, no, but uh, yeah uh, like I, I i was thinking like I, I had this conversation yesterday um you know like i think um you know you got to have people around you who are who are honest and like hey like yes. uh, i think that sucks or you yeah know, like, prove it point. and and i think just people sitting around being like oh harumph 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 like that's where you get into you get into problems and um, you get over your skis and then you end up doing the whole uh you know phone book um or phone phone booth you know, yeah, have, having your uh, uh, fan uh, fan club meetings in a phone booth. Yeah, that's uh, a bad deal. In in college, I took a class by a guy named Ken Jowett, and he was Reagan's advisor to Russia during his presidency. Wow. And then when he left there, he, he came in. He was a political science teacher at, at Berkeley and a professor and a rights. And uh, he would teach one under division, like uh, like you know, lower division class, and everybody took it because this dude would just get up and like tell stories that were like from the Oval Office, like telling the story the night that they came up with uh, um, basically creating this whole facade of Star Wars, which was the idea that we were going to put 
satellites. That might space. have been the dude that came to my thing. Like he, we heard about all the the thermite, the whole yeah. the whole thing with Star so, Wars and everything. Yeah, so, he talked about the the Berkeley at Berkeley is shooting a bullet out of a out of a out of the air. Yeah. So so this, uh, this guy was a professor. I don't know if he's a CIA guy. Could be. Who knows? Um, but. So they had uh, this idea based off of the movie that they were going to leak to the Russians that we had put satellites up in space that had lasers that could shoot down their missiles. Yes. And so we started, and the idea was that we're going to start this arms race to bankrupt, and we're not going to uh, we're not going to fight the Cold War. We're going to effectively bankrupt them, and then the straw that's going to break their back is when we allow the secrets to be stolen by these you know infiltrators and these nazis and if you've seen falcon and the snowman and all this shit um it, we're going to allow this information to like be leaked at the highest source that we have lasers that will destroy it all which will effectively just fucking destroy everything and so the night that they you know hatched this whole plan and they've been coming up with it never and so yeah he's telling us these stories it was pretty amazing like and what I was, was very, his last name is jowett right yeah ken jowett I got to look back through my emails. That might have been him. It was super cool. He said there was like an A team and a B team that they were doing. And he was on the B team of that. And nothing like good or bad. But he was like, talk about the political strategy and, and how I guess he had said that Reagan had been walking in the late 70s, early 70s, walking through a, uh, a division at Berkeley. And they had a kid who was telling them how he they were learning how to shoot bullets out of the air with other bullets. And he went back to, he remembered that. And that was a part of the, the whole thing about star Wars was like, tell us, give us enough information. He remembered like eight, 10 years later, like give us that information to how that sounds. So we can start using this technology or an idea to basically make the Russians think that we have this yeah. ability. And Ollie, I believe was telling me also about thermite that I, I believe the Russians had a thermite, which I guess is this incendiary yeah. ridiculous incendiary. And he's like, yeah, we. Well, that's did what they blow have. up pigs with here in Texas. That's, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thermite. Oh, yeah, no, no, said, that's. Um, that, that we didn't have it, but we were. We basically leaked that as well. Like, a, we could shoot your crap out of the sky, and we have this thermite. And uh, the Russians like, all right, good game, boys. Like, we're done. And they're like, it was. Just, it was a total poker game. Yeah. So that whole thing was what speed, like, you, you know, you remember Gorbachev and Reagan and the, you know, big book and all that and the coming down of the wall. All that was because they were like, fuck, like we just bankrupted our country trying to chase this like arms race. Uh, which... Interesting note, gentlemen, the Falcon or the Falcon and the Snowman. That's a 1985 movie. Yeah. Do you uh, do you also know the significance of, of the Falcon and the Snowman? No, I've never even heard of this until you just so named it. Uh, the Falcon and the Snowman was about uh, there was a rich kid, um, and then this other kid went down, and he was I think working at the McDonnell Douglas or somewhere down. I forgot the plant, but it happened in the South Bay, and those guys went to my high school. So when the movie, so after that whole thing went down, my dad, who was mayor of our town, told me that like all these like strange individuals moved to our town. That like uh -huh. we're like you know from Langley, Virginia, and all this, and like he was like, man, like they uh, realized that this was a hotbed, and then all of a sudden these people started moving in. And my dad always claimed that one of our neighbors who moved in shortly after that whole thing dropped was uh, they were CIA operatives. My dad's like, those people are fucking CIA. They moved from Langley, Virginia, and they're here. Like, why the fuck did they move here? They're, and, yeah, they're and they're like a. Um freaking vacuum salesman all of a sudden uh, no the guy was like uh 
I, I say the wife was like a psychologist and the guy like made like dental equipment, like these weird, sure. just, okay. yeah, like weird. Yeah. My dad was always like, they're full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then the, and then the glow packs were beside them. Yeah. It's a, it was a weird deal, but yeah. So that whole Falcon, and the snowman thing, I remember seeing that movie. We went with my parents. Um, but like, yeah, the guy was like a cocaine dealer and I was like, Oh Jesus. It's the first time I knew about any of that stuff. But yeah, that Falcon snowman is pretty cool. Uh, we get another movie recommendation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, you can't I go wrong with Red Dawn and fucking Falcon and the snowman. Jeez. What, what year was Red Dawn? Was that 87? No, it was 84. It was 84. Okay. Yeah. I checked that as well. Hmm. I didn't want to support either of your arguments for the 1985. Uh, dude, we but... have a pretty epic podcast <laughs> arguing. What was it? 85 versus 94? 1994, yeah. Dumb and Dumber, Forrest Gump, which, Bert, you've just dropped 15 times this podcast, just saying. Uh, I think I went well, with 85. I'm... Oh, yeah. You, yeah. Y- yeah y'all yeah, two yeah, were yeah, Team we, 85. And, and then we did Team 85 to beat up on your 94. I yeah, think, I think we all we, know who won. I think we curb stomped it. <laughs> yeah, I think. Okay, so here's the thing, John. Were you and I talking about this before? So you probably know him because you know everyone that lives in California. Uh, John Milius. No, I don't know that name. Okay, so check this out before we go down the the movie rabbit hole. So I was, of course, some nights you look at your phone before you go to bed to give you something to do. I kind of usually clear my brain of like stuff that matters. So, of course, I was looking up Red Dawn. And and so it turns out that Milius, I guess, wrote and directed Red Dawn, John Milius. I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. Let me know a little bit more about this guy. I look him up and I see his his other movies. Have you are you looking at this at the moment? I'm I'm trying to play catch up, but keep so going. Let, let me just let me just give you a little heads up. So what I realize is this guy was probably the most influential person in my life, unknowingly. Oh. So his movies that he was included in either wrote dialogue for Conan the Barbarian, mm. Red Dawn, Big Wednesday, um, Apocalypse Now, uh, Clint Eastwood, Magnum Forced, Hearts of Darkness. Hold on, we keep going. It gets better. Jeremiah Johnson, Dirty Harry, mm. Geronimo, uh, Extreme Prejudice, Uncommon Valor. Oh, God. One of my favorites. 1941, um, Clear and Present Danger. <laughs> the monologue of the uss indianapolis and jaws wow dude just the fact that uncommon valor i mean uncommon valor was amazing dude uh funny story i'm in a bar in philadelphia it was called the irish uh fuck the irish pub it was uh it was right on second street right off the front and as i'm sitting randall tex cobb come in that's exactly who sat down next to me. And so yes. I'm sitting down at the bar. Right? Uh, yeah, exactly. So they, they bring my food and I look over and I'm like, holy fuck, that's Sailor. And so I asked the bartender, I was like, can I buy him dinner or food or whatever? And he came over and I was like, I'm not kidding you. My brothers and I lived and died by that movie. Oh, I had a, gren- a fake grenade, on, or a real one, but a drilled out one. I, I had when I would go play army outside, I got at the army Navy store. Dude. Sailor, uh, that whole thing where he's like, uh, why, why they call him Quailer or Sailor? Because you get a bunch of red wine, drink a bunch of Quaaludes, and just sail away. And at the time, we didn't know what Quaaludes were. It wasn't until yeah, right. it was later we figured that out. But like <laughs> that whole thing, he's like, why does he have a hand grenade? He's just fucking shit gets too heavy. He's gonna pull the pin and see what happens next. Like there was <laughs> like, remember Blaster? It was Sailor Wilkes. Oh yeah, they did uh, the. Oh yeah, no, the great was, training montage. Of the it was great. Yeah, they're yeah, running. So with I was those. like, okay. 
So you've done basically Conan the Barbarian, Jaws, Uncommon Valor, and Red Dawn. You're the most influential person in my life. And I mean, then here's- if I ask you the riddle of steel, I mean, it's like, you know, well, how do you not know this? How do you not know? That? Here's the thing. The crazy. Um, I got right. one fun fact for you, Bert. I was this, about to tell you, I bet this is it. Oh, well, John Milius, the character Walter from Big Lebowski, based on him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh. You see the picture of him? He was the yeah. same guy. And they yeah. said he would literally walk around the set with a, a 45 cocked and locked and put it on the, on the table when he'd have business meetings with people. They said he was legitimately Walter. That's who that character is after. That is, I, uh, Walter is one of my favorite characters in cinema history. He's yeah. like, it's a show dog, dude. It's got papers. <laughs> so my goal now is the only person I ever want to have on the podcast is John Milius. Because nice. I want to be able to tell some, because he's like in his 70s. I'm going to be like, listen, sorry, man. I'm just a kid from South Carolina. And like, you're, you're crazy ass basically formed my entire mind as as a as a only child in the 80s. So we had a similar moment. We had a guy on from the Charlie Foundation um who was <clears throat> Abrams. Yeah, uh, Jim Abrams. So uh the Charlie Foundation is a deal where they use ketogenic diets uh for a child's epilepsy. So his son okay. was epileptic. They were going to do a lobotomy. He figured out that ketogenic diets fix this and it kind of tied in with Ken Ford. So he started this thing called the Charlie Foundation and so we're having him on and we're going through this whole thing and I'm sitting there like text because at the time we weren't on video. So we're like, you know, talking, you know, doing the podcast. And so I'm on my computer and uh, he's like talking about this. And so I put his name in with the Charlie Foundation and all of a sudden his IMDB pops up. He was the writer for all of Airplanes, the Naked Guns, uh, Blazing <laughs> Saddles. He like went through this whole list of things. And like all of a sudden as I'm reading this, I like stopped him. And I'm like, I'm telling you. Uh, you've done amazing work here, but you were responsible for much of my childhood and the movies yeah. we watched with like, and then he started laughing and we talked about Airplane and Leslie Nielsen and like oh The Naked gosh. Gun and all these movies that he had done. And like, we had a great podcast, but I was like, uh, like you wrote like the soundtrack, like the, the, the movie, like we watched these movies till we couldn't watch them anymore on video. Yeah. And, uh, you yeah it was pretty amazing to have them on. Well, oh. it'd, it'd be like you have John Milius on for like a different reason. And then you're like, Google his name. And you're like, oh my God, you wrote Red Dawn? Oh. He was, you just see me pass out. He also was a founding member of the UFC. Who, John Milius? Yeah, Ultimate Fighting wow. Championships. Dude. That guy. All right, so if anyone's listening out there could get me in touch with John Milius. I, I think that, I mean, how awesome, how fun it would be to do a dual podcast with yeah. John Millius. Dude, it'd be great. Well, I, I, I mean, we, we can make it happen. I'm sure we'll, you know what I found? If we put things out in the universe, yeah, good things happen. Case in point, we had Mr. Matthew Modine uh -huh. on to talk about Vision Quest High School It was a wrestling. fantastic podcast. I enjoyed the heck out of that. Well, the, the best job. part is, is uh, uh, his like uh, PR people, whatever, were like, all you get is 30 minutes. And we get him on there, and the podcast was like challenge an, accepted, like an hour plus, mm -hmm. and to the point where he's like, "I gotta go to this thing, but I'm pretty bummed. I like we should do this again." And we're like, <laughs> "Yes, we convert, converted Matthew Modine. I mean, uh, yeah, like uh, Vision a Quest, one. dude. To, to, I mean, Vision Quest stacks up in there in our movies and Full oh, Metal shit. Jacket. Like, holy shit, amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize you were a, an uncommon valor guy too. Oh. I mean, I guess it makes total sense. 
dude uh, but that that kind of goes right with the red dawn and the brother at the end i'm like all right if i gotta dive off of a of a guard tower with with two grenades sometime i i can't think of a better way to go uh you know like i was i, I was we talked on the podcast i think it was uh yesterday or a couple days ago but i you know um i don't know if this happens to you it might it might might not but like do you ever have like the 3 a.m existential moment where you like wake up and you're sitting there staring and you're like why are we here yeah, not like, as much as 3 a.m., but yeah, I certainly get that. Yeah, so I, I, I get this like 3 a.m., like, why are we here? You know, like, what's the purpose of this whole thing? Like, what's the, you know, what's the goal? Like, who am I? You know, and you just kind of go through all yeah. this play in your mind. And like, as I was kind of thinking, like, uh, you know, you brought up Uncommon Valor, like the simplicity of that. These guys are like, you know, go to Vietnam, they get into this thing, and then they kind of, you know, they come back and they go their separate ways. And, you know, Wilkesy's welding and, you know, blasters over there keep teaching kids how to ride dirt bikes and sailors fucking in the drunk tank. Um, you know, and then here's this guy that like, you know, goes back and is like, you know, your, you know, your lieutenant was my son and he's still yeah. a POW. And these guys yeah. being like, we have to go back and get these guys. Like that sense of like, you know, yeah. we have unfinished business. And then those guys go back and they're able to, you know, go back and save some people. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, you know, like service and, um, you know, Tate yeah. Fletcher. We, we just had Tate on the podcast, which was great because, um, you know, Tate was in a real dark place. And yeah. I don't know if you remember at his Sornex talk, um, yeah. I remember when he got up there and he was trying to like kind of fumble a little bit and he was trying to find his words and then we all started cheering for him and he fucking caught his moment he was in the throes of um you know having a bunch of like you know uh, brain issues and was going through this yeah. kind of dark depression and like it's i always think about his talk of like what do i want to do like serve like i want to be of service i want to like help people and this and like you know like what's the mark of this how do you know is it just about like oh i do this thing and help like are we helping people are we making a difference are we, you know, like, like, what am I providing? You know, you know, right. are, you know, am I going to be remembered a hundred years from now? And it's like, you know, all those things are going through your mind and then you, you know, realize like, Hey man, I got an amazing wife. I got great kids. We have a great community of people of like-minded individuals. And at the end of the day, like if those people can stand you and are happy to see you <laughs> when you walk in with a smile on your face, like what more could you ask for? Or, yeah. you know, like in uncommon valor that those dudes go in there fucking, hot and basically blow shit up and get their friends out and they're flying back and those dudes are like you know you can see him super skinny like crying and being like thank you for coming and saving us you didn't forget yeah. us so yeah that, and that's it man that's where you come to the realization of like we could all chase our own stuff and we've chased weights we've chased distances or money and all the other stuff you're just like from a relevancy standpoint like it only works like true value is only if you're doing it for other people and, and creating a better situation for them Right. I mean, that that's that's the harsh, rea harsh or not harsh reality of it. And I think that's why, like some of those, I hate to make it a movie thing, but that's why maybe some of those movies just hit me so hard early because they put something in there into the fabric of my formative years that I didn't fully understand until later. <clears throat> and then as you grow up, you kind of go, oh, like it wasn't about how far I did this or that or whatever, but, you know, checking in on, you know, a Rudy Reyes or a Brandon Lilly when he was having trouble or man, you know. how far has he come? Oh my gosh. That Dude, guy is I, the I, success uh, story of the decade. No, nah, we, I mean, we've been, uh, um, you know, we need to get him on. Like we, we've never had him on power at the radio, which oh actually, yeah. uh, I like we realized and we're like, Oh fuck, we got to get him on. But it's amazing to see where, how far he's come. 
Um, you know, yeah. and like I always said, man, it's hard for Leopard to change his spots, man. And I think that dude, you know, m- might have changed his spots to stripes. Uh, but yeah, he, he's he's one of the right. most impressive people I've ever been around, and it's in it in it's the in the fruit, right? Like I've had no less than easily a hundred. I'll just say a hundred, hundred people have le- at least DM'd me or texted me like, hey. Brandon speaks very highly of you, but Brandon's helped me so much in X, Y, Z. And these are people I don't even know. Well, and I'm, I'm sure you've had people like, DM you and be like, "That's a, that guy's a bad guy. Stay away from that guy. Yeah. And I yeah. And, don't and think I ever like, got that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And, but you look and you're like, wow, if he's behind the scenes, like helping all these people and not like flexing about it. And these people are always just coming at me going, seriously, man. Hey, like, thanks. You know, I'm like, what do you mean? And like, you know, Brandon's just doing his stuff in the background. You know, I don't know if he's trying to make up and he's told me he's kind of like trying to make up for stuff that he had done before, but you're like, yeah, I think he's so far in the black at this point. Um, and it, it's awesome that, you know, he and I, you know, get off when we talk to each other, like just, you know, trying to chase down that, like, how do we provide more value to the people we love? Because that's what actually matters. Right. And, um, you know, it's like, I look at Tate and Tate's just a, a beautiful human being. I, I loved, I wrote down what he said. <clears throat> he said, I'm trying to, when in the pot, in the uh, presentation at Summerstrong, he said, I'm trying to be a human. Oh, what do he say? I'm trying to be a human, a person of the world in good standing, you know? And you're just like, that's a really interesting way to put it. You know, it, it's well, after all the bullshit said and done and you cash out, like was the world in a bet was the world a better place because of your existence here well, and if so like if that's what you could drive towards then then well, I mean, you let you, you left the balance sheet better well that and it was something I, I talked to Tate um it was funny he he uh he called me and left a message and um I could hear the clarity in his voice and I called him back and we started rapping and like within like 10 minutes I was like yo man just save it like let's do a podcast tomorrow and yeah. so we, we got him on because it was the first time I'd heard that clarity in his voice but um, something that resonates with me, and I think about this as well, um, you know, when my dad was sick, um, you know, he was, you know, basically in his last part of this fight. And I asked him, like, you know, like, hey, dad, is there anything else on the bucket list? Like trying to give him like, hey, we got we still got shit to do. And yeah. everything in his bucket list was redoing the things that he'd always done. But with us, he was like, I got a chance to go to the Galapagos and go scuba diving. But you guys weren't there. I want to go back and go, you know, this wow. and like. He went through all these things and I was like, man, it blew me away that his bucket list was just redoing all these things that he had gotten to do, but with us. And I like, I still want to go to Mammoth one more time and ski with you guys. And like, that was super impactful because it wasn't like, oh, I drove badass Porsches and I had a Rolex and I got to, you know, was a practicing trial attorney for 52 years and I did this. I mean, none of that. It was, um, I want to go back and make the memories for like, and have that. And so I sometimes think that there's like this interesting idea of like accumulation and like, you know, like, oh, I have to do this or, you know, this is the person, you know, here, here. And like at the end of the day, like, you know, you're in your final leg and, you know, the, the ancient Egyptians couldn't fucking take it with them, even though they tried. And as you're right. laying there, you know, to breathing in your final breath, the memories and the things that make you know whether or not you were a good person and you were of service and you did all these things. And this is what Tate and I talked about. Um, you know, who's surrounding you, who's like, you know, yeah. you, you did a great job. We'll, you know, we'll carry your name on. Um, yeah. you know, were you, you, you know, were, were you the type of person that, you know, shit, if, uh, so-and-so passed away, would I fly halfway across the earth and fucking ride a donkey for two weeks to get there, to be there and to get up and say a few words. And I think like, sure. that's really the only mark you have. Like, 
you know, that when we, we talked about earlier in this podcast with like that idea of physical culture, like, are you contributing to that physical culture? Are you a piece? Like, is there going to be, you know, cause one day we'll all be old and gone, but like when yep. somebody goes and builds a hall of fame for strength, you know, how does that fit in? How do we fit into this? Are we part of that yeah. conversation? And, right. you know, and that's uh that's something I think a ton about, especially, you know, having kids, like what memories do they have? Like, you know, and, and you do, you're a, uh, um, you know, every time I'm around your family, like in what I get to see off of social man, you're a great father. And like those kids will forever be raised around this and like tell stories about the dad and his crazy friends and this and like people would show <laughs> up and this. Like I, I fucking love that because like those, those stories, like your son will be 18, 20 years old and he's like, dude, you want to hear how crazy my dad was? <laughs> my dad and all of his big fucking buddies would show up and we'd go to this huge party and people would fucking lift weights and there was this dude in Silkies, I don't know his name, but he's on Call of Duty. And like, there'll just be these endless stories because like, that's the way, um, like that's, you know, and you know, your sons will see what you did with your father and this and like carry that on and dude. And that's, that's pretty epic, man. It's cool to be a part of. Well, thanks, man. I, mean, I feel the same way. I mean, we've had our time, you know, we've chased our dreams, you know, and of course we're still doing it, but, but I agree a hundred percent. I had a long conversation with my dad yesterday, you know, and, and, we don't get to go as, on as many long trips. You know, we went down to University of Georgia. We were installing the, um, the the football weight room down there, and so you know, it's fun when I get to take pops to the new installs because it's been a while since he's gotten on the road, and you know, and and you know, there's a pride to get to say, okay, pops, you <clears throat> saw this as an as as something a way to change the strength world and to build a relevancy within the strength world by building this brand that was never intended to be a brand or a company. And, and look, look where it's grown. Like, look what, you know, we weren't even here for the first three days of the install and we showed up and look what our guys have done because you taught me and I taught them and they taught each other and, and it's gone down the line. So your relevancy is in these 30 something racks and like all this coolness and these super high technological things are going on. It's like my, I told him, I said, my gift to you is for me to push as hard as I possibly can. So you get to enjoy this while you're still here and to get to see the fruits grow into something and enjoy these fruits and realize that I'm going to attempt to give my kids the same opportunities and challenges that you gave me. So one day, you know, it, when I'm the, uh, when I'm a tick on their timeline, that I, I still have some relevancy and some value to what I was able to give them, you know? And so, it was cool. It was a cool, literally yesterday, it was a cool experience for me as a son to be able to go, are you proud? This is what I tried. This is what I promised you I would try to do. And I think I've done it. I'm trying to do it for our family name and for what you started. And if you'd like me to alter it, let's talk about it. But what I promised you 10 years ago, I was going to do, I think I've done. Yep. And um, so we had a cool moment yesterday. It was awesome. No, it's, uh, it, it's cool, man. And, um, you know, like it's, uh, it's something where, you know, like my dad came and visited and he was gone roughly 28 days later or, wow. yeah, I mean, no, it was, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. It was like, yeah, it was, it was like super quick and like, you know, you hope you say all those things, but that's cool as shit, man. That, um, uh, I always enjoy seeing your dad. Like I said, I enjoy shaking his hand and, uh, you know, <laughs> and then seeing him kind of, you know, like, uh, I know he doesn't remember who half these fucking people are and they go over to him. He's like, I'm going to go hang in my office. 
But uh, no, man, it's cool. And I'm super stoked that Summer Strong's coming back around and uh, we look forward to being there. So, man, I can't wait to see you guys. And you're, you guys are bringing the big uh, hammer, hammer big wacky. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to th throw it on the trailer, strap it in and bring it. And I think it'd be a good place for it. So I'm, uh, I, I want to include that in the uh, potentially in the combine this year. OK, let's do it. Um, so we got a couple things in mind, but you, but you were definitely a top of conversation. We're super pumped that it's coming. And and the biggest thing that you guys are bringing is y'all. I mean, that's the key, right? It's the, it's the family reunion. And, you know, I think we thrive off each other's energy and just mutual respect for one another, but also the iron game. And, you know, proud to call you a brother, man. I hope we get to do this when we're old, man. That's the goal. Yeah. When, I mean, it's it, like, I always think I'm like, it'd be like, oh, we're 65. Got to go see, you know, old man Soren, <laughs> you know, like roll out there. And at that point, you know, it'll probably have fucking the town of Sorenex that you guys just up and buy. And next thing you know, we'll just have a town. Oh, well, yeah. And we have, and my kids will see the old, old man Wellborn and your kids will be yeah. coming over. Like, that, that's, I mean, that's another goal. It's like, I want within the next few years for you to bring your Airstream that you're going to get and haul the kids. Oh, I talk and, to my uh, wife about it all the time. I'm like, yeah, that'd be and she's like, if it just shows up, I, I won't care. Hey, you're cleared hot. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally cleared hot on that. So <laughs> awesome, dude. Well, thank you so much for being uh, an alum and an illustrious guest on Power Athlete Radio. It's always a pleasure, man. And uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. Man, I it's an honor to, to call you guys friends. It's an honor to be on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Bert. We'll see you in a few. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Just in time for Summer Strong 14, starting on Friday, May 21st. If you find yourself in South Carolina and feel like rubbing elbows with fellow performance nerds, I would highly recommend attending this life-changing event. Until next time, bye!